Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, we look back at some of the big stories of 2015. Well, at least as we see it, plus all of the week's new stories in the roundup and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 247 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode on December 12th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. My name is Chris. Oh, and I should tell you about our live stream. Our live stream, powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Anyways, you don't need to know about me. You need to know about Alan Jude. He is our tech, the teacher, and the admin, and our host. Hey there, Mr. Jude. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. Episode 247 has some of our favorite moments from 2015 itself. So last week, we went way back in the TechSnap archives. But really, there's been a lot of things that have just happened in 2015. This year, yeah. It's been kind of a big year. Uh, and I, I, I'm I, surprised you picked this first one because when I did my list, this was also one of the first ones on my list. Yes. So that was episode <laughs> so, 227. Yeah. Uh, not only just because this came up around the time of my first Brian Cantrell interview on BSD Now, uh, but this just came up and kind of just explained a lot about one particular part of the industry. Uh, so back in episode 227, we had the coverage of when Oracle's chief security officer, Mary Ann Davidson, made a blog post railing against people who were reverse engineering and doing security research on Oracle products like Java and <laughs> all their other stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they she claimed that Oracle's pretty good at finding bugs in their own code, and they don't need anybody else's help, and reverse engineering their stuff violates their EULA. Hence, the episode's title, Oracle's Eulogy. <laughs> that was a good one. Uh, but yeah, the blog post was quickly taken down after it was posted right, because of the firestorm it caused. Too late. But this is the internet. That's yeah. not how that works. No. You would hope and, Oracle's uh, security chief would know that. <laughs> you would think. Yeah. Well, I think it was more uh, that her boss probably yeah. had it taken PR, down. PR, somebody marketing, someone yeah, gets Somebody down. was like, that's terrible. You can't say those things. What are you doing? Right. Yeah. And that was a great moment. Yeah. And that was in episode 227. Enjoy. Yeah. So check it out. Right. So uh, chief security officer, uh, Mary Ann Davidson of Oracle, uh, did this blog post, which starts off in kind of a, a weird tone talking about how she likes to write mystery novels or something. It was odd. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then it's Oracle basically saying that you should stop reverse engineering our stuff. We fix our own bugs. Leave our code alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're violating our EULA. Stop that. <laughs> so uh, Oracle, which has never been the most researcher-friendly software vendor, has uh, taken this antagonism to an entirely new level with this blog post. Yeah. Uh, where it rails against reverse engineering, saying that the company has no need for researchers to look at Oracle's code for vulnerabilities because that's their job and they do it. Right. And if you don't, if you don't trust them, don't scan it. Just, you know, trust the agreement you have with them. You know, yeah. just trust them. Just trust Oracle, Alan. Yep. Uh, and it created quite an uproar. So very, very quickly, the blog post was pulled down. Uh, luckily... This is the internet, so that doesn't do any good. <laughs> nope. Uh, so archive.org and Google's cache both have copies that I have links to here if you'd like to read the full unaltered version. I like this. Did you mention that the uh, the title of the post was No, You Really Can't? Yeah. Which is like... <laughs> Dude, it's really attitude. Can't. It's attitude, it's Alan. so much attitude. Yes. 
Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and there's tones and, and like uppercase like yelling in the post and like the oh yeah <laughs> okay yeah uh, Marianne Davidson who's uh, worked at Oracle for more than 25 years said in the post that reverse engineering violates Oracle's license agreement and that the com- company regularly sends letters to customers and consultants who it believes have violated the end user license agreement she also said that even when researchers try to report a security vulnerability in an Oracle product, the company often takes issue with how the bug was found and won't give any credit to the researchers. Yeah, and even sends like cease and desist letters in some cases. Yeah. <laughs> and this is really where I take the most extreme exception. Um, firstly, I don't imagine it's your regular Oracle customer who's doing the reverse engineering. Right. Right? If, if I'm a company that does X that isn't security, I don't have time to tear apart the Oracle product. So I hire a security consultant or whatever. And specifically, those security research companies um, that go and look for bugs in software, they're either doing it because they're paid to or they're looking for the bug in the Oracle software to get it fixed for the sake of everybody who uses the software. Yeah. Uh, and the way it works is, you know, they find the bug, they get it fixed, they get credit for finding the bug, and this boosts their reputation, and that's how they get their consulting contracts. Um, this, and, and that's why they're giving this bug away to the vendor for free instead of selling it to the bad guys for money, right? This is the difference between all the good guy security researcher companies that we talk about on the show all the time and the bad guys like VuPen and, and Hacking Team. Right is that they give it back <laughs> uh, they give it back to the vendor for free, mm-hmm. specifically in exchange for credit for having found it right uh, to build their business on right and if oracle's like yeah we 're going to be really annoyed at you and and screw you around if you try to report a bug to us." And if we eventually do fix it, we won't give you any credit for it. Yeah, I mean, she basically just admitted publicly that they're huge douchebags when people try to help them with their, fit, with their problems. Like, that's essentially what she said is our yeah. corporate response when people try to make our product better is we go after them with legalese. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it really drives me nuts. But, you know, the whole system depends on, A, the vendor actually accepting and acting upon bug reports when they get them. And Oracle, you know, tries to resist and claim, oh, that's not a bug, you know, until you, like, give them a reproducer that shows them that it's still actually a bug. Mm-hmm. So they're just being resistive. And obviously some people are not going to keep following up, right? Right. Uh, and then eventually it, when Oracle is this big of a pain, uh, people will just do full disclosure and drop the exploit in the wild immediately. Uh, because when they try to be responsible, Oracle just pushes back. Right. Yeah, you almost have you almost have more legal flexibility when you just publicly disclose because at least then they haven't sent you a cease and desist and started a process with you where they've told you to stop. Yep, uh, and they're more forced to fix the problem too. Yeah, it really does just encourage people to to just drop this on the web. Yeah, but really the the whole way the the security community and the industry works depends on vendors giving credit to people who discover the flaws. And that's why when, you know, uh, later in the show, when we pull up the patch notes from the latest Adobe, at the bottom, they say, oh, thank you to this person at this company for finding this flaw, and these three people at this company for finding these five flaws, and so on. Because that's an important part of the process, even if it's just in the footnotes, right? 
It doesn't have to go in the headline press release. You don't have to be like, oh, we were all saved by the people at Google Project Zero. You just have to give them credit that they can point to, right? Is this, is this about Oracle not wanting to give credit to competitors, maybe? I don't think so. Because most of the places that are finding these bugs are not competitors to Oracle. Yeah, right? okay, yeah. Okay. Like, if you remember when, uh, back in the early days, there was that, was it Polish company? And they found, like, that series of, like, 25 vulnerabilities in Java. Do you remember way back? It was, like, mm. three years ago. Yeah, that all start- no, it's all starting to blur together. Usually I do, yeah. but... Oh. But, yeah, anyway, uh, years and years ago, there was this company. I forget what it was called now, but... Uh, and they had just, you know, started picking away at Oracle and had this list of Java flaws mm-hmm. okay. with new producers. And I, then, okay, okay, I do so, Like, every this. six months, they would... Uh, be able, uh, Oracle would finally patch some of them and they'd be able to release the details of them. And we followed it quite closely. And it's like, you know, those guys weren't getting money from anybody at that point for that actual work. They were just doing it so that they could hire clients, right? So I used to be cl- like, just the, be clear. The people that made the, the heartbleed.com, you know, that's the whole reason why vulnerabilities have names and stuff now. Because we, was, oh, we were the company that found Heartbleed. You should yeah. hire us to do well, your security and, audit. And just to be clear, does do you know, does Oracle not have a bug bounty program at all? They definitely do not. Uh, actually, ah. they, in, in the article, they rant. It's like, everybody says we should have a bug bounty program. It's like, you don't have to have a bug bounty program, but you have to at least accept bug reports. And, and, right. and when possible, credit. I mean, see, she's yeah, – exactly. the, 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 uh, the uh, chief security officer's argument is I'm not going to credit somebody because they reverse engineered our license. Uh, that's – you know – I'm not going to reward you for reverse engineering our license, but it, yeah, that's a, I think that's, a, that's an outdated way of looking at the problem. Sure. Well, and, uh, you know, what we actually, uh, in the interview coming up on next week's BSD Now, we talked to Brian Cantrill, and he brings up the great point to pretty much any engineer. Reverse engineering is, is like an inalienable right. It's like if I have something in my hand or whatever, software <laughs> or a piece of hardware or whatever, yep, yep. You can't make it illegal for me to think about how it works and figure out how it works. You know, you have patents to prevent me from building a similar product and based on that it. reverse engineering and selling it. Yeah. We have copyrights to stop me from reverse engineering your code and selling it. But it seems like we in have your house or maybe, but, maybe even your own yeah. business, you should be allowed exactly. to. I, you can't take away my right yes. to think about how your product works right. and figure out how it works. That happens in my head. You can't, you can't thought police me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, when a researcher is helping you better your software for free, the least you can do is give them credit. You don't even have to give them a T-shirt. All you have to do is include their name. Mm-hmm. It's not that difficult. It's not onerous. Uh, yeah, what's you know, if Oracle doesn't want to have a bug bounty program, that's their decision. I guess so. But they can't expect the entire security, uh, security community to just pretend Oracle and its products don't exist and not attack them. Right. And, you know, if they thought that they were being bothered by the security community before. <laughs> I know, right? Reverse engineer all of the things. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just asking for it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was their secret goal. It's like, how do we get a bunch of our bugs fixed for free? <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. No. But Oracle has proven time and again that they prefer to be malicious. Yeah, they, they, they don't seem to be, yeah, exactly. But yeah, uh, so here's a great poll quote from the article. 
Uh, I almost hate to answer this question because I want to reiterate that customers should not and must not reverse engineer our code. However, if there is an actual security vulnerability, we will fix it. We may not like how it was found, but we aren't going to ignore a real problem. That would be a disservice to our customers. We will, however, fix it to protect all of our customers, meaning everybody will get the fix at the same time. Right, so they're not going to give you a hot fix for it while they work on an actual fix for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Not that owner, you know. You, most people wouldn't expect that. I don't think. So at least they're going to fix it eventually, as we saw. It's like you know, once a quarter they'll push an update. They're yeah, but they gonna, will not credit, as they say, they will not credit for it. Yeah. However, we will not give a customer reporting such an issue uh, that they have found through reverse engineering a special one-off patch for the problem, and we will also not provide credit in any advisory we might issue. Uh, we can't really expect us to say thank you for breaking the license agreement. <laughs> it's like more like thank you for finding this critical flaw in our program and preventing us from being further embarrassed mm-hmm. the next time there's a... But credit? Nope. No credit for anybody. You know, uh, there's just... It's so obvious what you would do instead. Since you're not going to be able to build up a brand and a reputation by finding and selling these or I'm, I'm reporting these to Oracle, you're going to go sell them, right? You're going to go mm-hmm. sell them or you're going to go post them. You, may, you, might do, you might dump them, but more likely you're going to go sell them because Oracle has a whole bunch of people that use their products and there's a lot of money out there to get uh, some good exploits. So that, they're just asking for it. It kind of boggles well, my mind. And, then, and they're also asking people to actually read the EULA. Uh, and if you've read any EULA for any software ever, it specifically says this software is not warranted for any use whatsoever. So basically they're saying, no, you, you, you don't use our software for anything ever. <laughs> uh, you know, it, using our software in production, that's crazy. Nobody should ever do that. Our software is not guaranteed to do anything properly. And that's what every EULA says, right? Because that's how companies avoid getting sued. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. Putting anti-reverse engineering clauses in EULA seems like that should be unenforceable. Specifically, you know, you can't stop someone from thinking about your product. It feels, it feels as enforceable as the uh, disclaimers at the bottom of email signatures. You know, yep. like, it's just there. Yeah. But really, you know, you, you can't think about my program. Don't do that. You're thinking about it right now. Stop it. You, f- you lose the game. <laughs> You lose the game. <laughs> I like that. Didn't they? Didn't they equate? Didn't they equate bug bounties to the new boy band? And I thought that was particularly like uh, you know they're hip. Right. <laughs> Is that something like that? Uh, that, that, that was uh, threat post. Not, oh, okay. Uh, something like okay, okay, yeah. yeah but because like that's 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 real. That's really asking for it. If you're really if you're calling them the new boy the uh, bug bounties the new boy band, then you're really kind of kind of asking for it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess I mean it is very it is very hip right now. Uh, so the last one they say, uh, oh no, sorry, the boy band thing I issued that was um, maybe that was Oracle. Sorry. Oh, okay. Anyways, uh, uh, anyway, uh, Oracle says that they find eighty-seven percent of security vulnerabilities themselves, uh-huh. whereas security researchers only find three percent, and the other ten percent are found by their customers. So ten percent. They're saying ten percent of people are violating the EULA. Is that what they're saying? But they're saying well, they're saying ten percent are found by their customers violating the EULA, and three percent are found by researchers violating the EULA. Yeah. So and it's like, well, the customers of- are probably not like fuzz testing the software. They're just trying to use it and find these security vulnerabilities. Yeah. And so that's probably not involving much reverse engineering. 
And, uh, of course, uh, Oracle's kind of walked back some of this in a sense because they well, yes, pulled uh, the post down. Uh, yes. Uh, Oracle Legal immediately pulled the post down uh, and uh, issued a statement that said that uh, the company removed the post because it doesn't fit with its, uh, the company's relationships with their customers. The security of our products and services have always been critically important to Oracle. Oracle has a robust program of product security assurances and works with third-party researchers and customers to jointly ensure the applications built with Oracle technology are secure. Hmm. We remove the post as it does not reflect our beliefs or our relationship with our customers. Well, there you go. I guess that's them at least trying to walk it back a little bit. But it seems like uh, this came from a pretty high up person who's been, what would you say, 20 years, 29 years? What would you say? 25 years. 25. As a chief security officer. It's the chief security officer whose job it is to interface with the security community and to fix bugs. And they're like, no, don't do that. I, I mean, I, I'm nobody to judge. But I'm just going to say, if she's been in charge of security for the last 25 years. I don't know. She's worked there for 25 years. She hasn't been in security that long. Okay. Okay. Maybe she's recently gotten the gig because I hope it hasn't been her that's been running that operation. For a few years. Cause I think it's been, been a couple of years. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, this explains actually a lot. This gives us a lot of insight into the state of Oracle. Yes. And, and I'm sure you've, uh, if, you, if you follow Twitter, you've probably seen the Oracle fanfic uh, Twitter hashtag where people have uh, taken random uh, Star Wars memes and, and replaced, you know, the force or whatever or <laughs> what? things like that with uh, technology terms and stuff. Nice. Yes. There's quite a few. Is that uh, is that is that is of that course, this one? The, uh, this is a oh, different one. related one where Oracle has told people to stop using Veracode to test the application security of Oracle products because uh, you know they Oracle covered. already have application security covered. They got this. and he found uh, remote uh, uh, cross-site scripting injection on the form where you post a comment on the blog. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> but Oracle's got it. Don't worry about it. Oracle's got that, Alan. They got yeah. that. <laughs> there has been one company that's gotten a lot of mentions throughout the history of TechSnap, and 2015 was no different. It was Sony, which brings us to episode 196, Alan. Yeah, it's funny, really, because TechSnap kind of originally wasn't going to have so much of the security focus, and then Sony. the Sony PSN <laughs> breach happened, yep. and, and that kind of set the tone for the show from mm-hmm. then on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, we had Sony's corporate network getting breached and the whole movies getting leaked the interview and all that. blaming it on north korea and so on uh now most of that actually happened in 2014 but in 2015 uh, in january there we had a great blog post by bruce schneier yeah. talking about all the things we could learn from the hack of the sony corporate network and i think that's what people watch TechSnap for is not so much to find out what happened but how it happened and what they can learn from it and how they can make sure it doesn't happen to them and so I think this will be a great clip. So this isn't about the naming and the blaming and stuff. That's a little bit more the second story. Gotcha. Uh, but this is, you know, what all of us can learn from what happened to Sony. Uh, so Bruce Schneier, who's a noted security researcher and written many books on the subject. Um, a couple of his are really nice uh, to read. Like, uh, I forget the name of the one I read recently or two or three years ago now. Um, but it, it's talking about uh, security and how it works and everything. But it's not any. You don't need any knowledge about computers at all. Like most of the examples are, how uh, you know the analogy of like your house or an airport or uh, just in the concepts of security, not the implementation. So you don't have to know anything about computers to actually start to understand the security implications of this stuff. Lovely. And uh, so he does a really good job of explaining stuff because of that. You know, it doesn't require any knowledge about computers to even uh, 
understand his stuff. Um, so he's discussed like, quite a few of the different things and the factors and, and so on that went on with the Sony attack. So, uh, you know, the main point of his thing is that an attack like this can happen to anyone, but that doesn't mean that Sony didn't make it especially easy in their case. Hmm. Uh, you know, there were, well, you know, he's not going to say he's going to blame Sony. There's not necessarily anything they could have done to stop it, but there are many things they could have done to uh, stop it sooner and to mitigate it when it did happen and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so he talks a bit about that. And he says, uh, one of the first things to think about when you're looking at an attack is, was this an opportunistic attack or a targeted attack? Right? It's kind of like, you know, a mugging is usually opportunistic, right? Someone happens to see you walking down the street or whatever. Or, you know, uh, if someone steals your laptop because you left it uh, on the table at the coffee shop, that's opportunistic, right? They didn't set out to steal your laptop. They just saw it sitting there and hmm. decided to steal it. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of thing versus targeted attack, which is someone who's hunting you down specifically, right? And he says uh, you can characterize attacks along two axes: uh, skill and focus. Uh, most attacks are low skill and low focus, right? People using common hacking tools against thousands of networks worldwide, right? So they're just those are the things you see. You know, the bots trying to log into your WordPress with uh, common credentials or SSH brute force attacks and things like that. Right. These low-end attacks include sending out spam to millions of addresses with, you know, phishing stuff, pretending to be from a bank or whatever, or uh, just spam in general, or, you know, hoping that someone will fall for it and click on the poison link. And he says he thinks of these as kind of like the background radiation of the Internet. Hmm. But then you have high-skill, low-focus attacks. These are more serious. These are attacks that use, uh, you know, sophisticated stuff like uh, newly discovered zero-day vulnerabilities that haven't been patched yet mm-hmm. against software and systems network. Um, these are the sort of attacks that target, um, you know, target the the retailer there, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, and a lot of the other commercial networks that we've seen that had their problems in the past year or so. Mm-hmm. Right? They weren't necessarily targeting Target; they were just going for anybody who had a big stash of credit cards. Yeah, and systems that were vulnerable to what they had available yeah. to use. Exactly. So we have some zero day. We'll just get anybody who happens to be vulnerable to this zero day. Yeah. Um, and, and 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 I think isn't it sort of like uh, even for a high scale crime like like the target attack, isn't it sort of the perfect timing because there's an established black market where you can buy these kinds of vulnerabilities. There's a ton of XP machines in production that probably haven't been patched in a really long time that are doing pro- uh, credit card transactions and they're reading that stuff right out of memory. There's bad implementations that have these networks connected to the internet, like through a vendor VPN, that are easy to take advantage of. You add it all up, it's it's. It's really it, it, it. I think an audience member of the TechSnap program could pull it off. It's not like it's yeah. uh, in it, particular. It's not like they set out to get Target and then found the uh, air conditioning management company. It was more that they were just um, probably low level attack all over the place, and then happened to manage to compromise something at this um, environmental management company. Mm-hmm. And then, while poking around there, discovered that mm. they had found a backdoor into Target. And I, then su- went on I suppose with any there. of these, there's always a possibility of a former employee with, you know, sort of an understanding of how the networks are connected says, you know, I think if you did this, you'd be able to. I mean, there's that possibility, I right. suppose, in some yes. cases. And that's our next story that's kind of about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, in the case of Target, it seems more like they stumbled across an unlocked door. And then once they got in, they didn't just grab the first thing they saw. They right. knew, hey... Right. 
Yeah, we see I, something. I here. noticed that nobody ever locks this door. So <laughs> yeah. we can keep coming back yeah. and figure out exactly when the big shipment is, you know, for say Black Friday, and then steal all the credit cards. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Schneider goes on. Uh, even scarier are the high skill, high focus attacks, the type that hit Sony. These include sophisticated attacks normally run by national intelligence agencies. But he's not saying that all high skill, high focus attacks are necessarily committed by governments. Just that the attacker has to be highly motivated, right? It, if it's a high-focus attack, it means you don't want to get just anybody. You're after one specific target, and you're just going to keep trying until you get in there. Yeah. Uh, whereas most attacks, it's more like, I'm going to try against everybody, and the first door that I get through, I'm going to go in. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, this category includes private actors, including uh, you know hacker groups like Anonymous, uh, which mounted a Sony-style attack against H.B. Gary, if you remember that. Mm-hmm. back from years ago mm-hmm. uh and you know the unknown hacker who stole the racy celebrity photos from apple's icloud using the the api to reset the password or whatever or to brute force it and posted them or you know the it security buzz phrase advanced persistent threat and all that you know those aren't necessarily governments they're just highly motivated attackers um and he brings up the point here the attackers who penetrated home depot's network didn't seem to care much about Home Depot. They just wanted a large database of credit card numbers to steal. So any retailer would do. Right. And as we cover in the roundup, it seems like they also got staples at about the same time. And, you know, again, they didn't care which retailers. They just wanted anybody who had big stocks of credit card numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so say low focus attacks uh, are easier to defend against, right? If Home Depot's system had been just a little bit better than the store next door to it, then the hackers would most likely have moved on and got those guys instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, you know, they'll just keep, uh, once they get yeah. all the low-hanging fruit, they'll start I think actually that point right there is worth maybe triple underscoring because uh, a lot of times I see people, especially end users, they just sort of get this, oh, what's the point attitude? Right. What am I going to accomplish? If somebody wants to get in, they're going to get in. And what in reality, what if it is, is if you know you lock the front door, well then somebody's more likely to go in the door that's not locked than go than try to go through the door that's locked. And it's even exactly. if even though they could break a window and get in, a little bit extra helps. That's why we all lock our door, right? It's the same exactly. kind of thing. It's like even if you could just try to stay on top of it, do your best ability, that just might make it difficult enough that they go somewhere else. Right. Or the old adage, you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to outrun the other guy. <laughs> yeah, that's another great way no, to look at it. No, that's for a low-focus attack, because the bear yeah. doesn't care, right. it just wants to kill someone. Bear's just hungry. Yes. Whereas, you know, if it's a sniper, if they're after you, running's not going to, even if you outrun some other person, if they want to shoot you, they're going to get you, not the other person, hmm. just because they're closer. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, because of that, uh, if you're the target of a low-focus attack, then all you have to do is be better than the other guys uh, or your neighbors or whatever. But if it's a highly-focused attack, then you have to uh, go further. Um, the, with attackers who are highly skilled and highly focused, the matter is whether a targeted company's security is superior to the attacker's skill, not just to the security measures of other companies. Uh, you know, Often it isn't, but it's... Uh, as people, we're much better at this relative security rather than absolute security, mm. right? We can have better security than our neighbor, but we couldn't say that we have absolute security. Sure, yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, you know, 
Uh, Snyder says, we know people who do penetration testing for a living. This is real, no-holds-barred attacks that mimic a real full-on assault by mm-hmm. a dogged expert hacker. And we know that the experts always get in because <laughs> the job's not over until they do, right? So yeah. they're just going to sit there and keep doing it and yeah. billing until they get yeah. uh, So against the sufficiently skilled, funded, and motivated attackers, all networks are vulnerable. Uh, but for those worried uh, that what happened to Sony could happen to you, he, uh, Snyder kind of has two pieces of advice. The first is if you're a corporation, take this stuff seriously, right? Security is a combination of protection, right? So having stuff to stop them from getting in in the first place. Detection, finding out when they get in. You know, Home Depot didn't have any clue that they had been hacked until the law enforcement said, hey, you've been attacked. Or Staples didn't know until the banks are like, hey, you're the common denominator in all these stolen credit cards, right? So you need better detection. Because if, you know, we've agreed that if you're being targeted by a highly skilled, highly focused attacker, then your network is going to be vulnerable in some way. But if you can detect when the attacker is breached, you can shut them out, fix the hole they used, and then go back to hoping they don't get in again. Right. Whereas if you don't detect it, then they're in there for a long time. Uh, And then thirdly is response. How do you deal with it once you do find out that someone's been in your network? Right. You know, uh, we saw the when the U.S. Post Office got had they had to they just turned everything off and rebuilt it one by one. Now that can work, but if your business is critical, maybe that's not so much of an option, and you need to have come up with a better strategy for isolating things. Right? Uh, you need uh, prevention to defend against those low focus attacks. Right? If you make sure you keep things patched up and you have uh, you know bastion hosts and firewalls and so on, that'll help. Uh, and it makes the targeted attacks harder. But then you also need detection to spot the attackers who inevitably do get through. And you need response to minimize the damage, restore security, and manage the fallout that happens. Ah. So yeah, it was just... And then uh, his second point was the other people that were really hurt by this attack were the employees of Sony who yes. necessarily didn't do anything wrong. This, that's, had the all sad, that's the saddest part. Private emails and stuff. Yeah. And he mostly just points out for individuals, you have to look at the fact that you know, everything you write on Facebook, technically, even if you send it as a private message, if Facebook got hacked, other people could see that. And how big of a deal is that to you? And so you, again, you come back to making sure you don't post things you wouldn't want anybody to see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just, Snyder's even kind of uh, uh, given up on trying to avoid having his data stored in a cloud somewhere or somewhere. You know, he says it's pretty hard to avoid Google and iCloud. And, mm-hmm. And and uh, a Dropbox and, I mean, all that yeah, stuff. And, and yeah, and so it doesn't mean give up. It just means make sure you keep in mind that, you know, make sure that this gets stored here and this goes there. And, and you know, just think about the fact that when you post something or when you send something to one of these companies that something could happen. One of our sponsors this week is Ting. And, of course, they've been here all year long making the TechSnap show possible. And I think it's because they know you just need to be a little savvy to realize why TechSnap makes a lot of sense. They just take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. They add them up, and you just pay for what you use. If you're a little data savvy, like you download your podcast over Wi-Fi, or if you're like me and you hardly make any calls, I mean, that's really my big savings. There's all kinds of different ways you can do this. And one of the things I love about Ting is there's no contract and there's no early termination fee. You just go, go, go get yourself a phone, go to techsnap.ting.com or bring a phone. They have CDMA and GSM networks available, and that's pretty much it. No sneaky contracts, no sneaky line items. I have three smartphones on my Ting line, 
And I pay somewhere between $40 and $45 a month for those three phones with no contract. And if I ever need a little extra more, I just pay a little more that month. And when I don't, I pay a little less. It's a system mm-hmm. that works really well for me. They have a great dashboard to manage all of it. They have fanatical customer support. And the thing, the thing I think that's sort of empowering about it is they really have more of a person approach account style than they do a device. So I could I, – well, I do actually have some CDMA devices and GSM devices. So I'm able to leverage both networks of Ting and I get really great coverage. I get really great speeds. I can pick and choose and the prices are absolutely reasonable. I invite you to go to techsnap.ting.com and then go check out this new Consumer Reports annual cell phone service a survey they did of over 90,000 uh, cell phone customers. And guess who comes out on top? That'd be Ting. Yep. TechSnap.ting.com. TechSnap.ting.com. And a big thanks to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Guys, thanks for going there, too, and supporting our show. Visiting them, let them know you heard about it here, and you appreciate them supporting the TechSnap program. TechSnap.ting.com. Okay, Alan, so now we're going to jump back into the uh, TechSnap time machine, and we're going to go to episode 217. Uh, (laughs) The recurring theme of firmware being terrible. (laughs) Yes. Uh, so this one, we feature a story on how some security researchers found 60 different flaws like persistent cross-site scripting, unauthorized cross-site scripting, cross-site request forgery, denial of service, privilege escalation, information disclosure, backdoors, authentication bypasses, USB device bypass, uh, other authentication bypasses, UPnP vulnerabilities, etc. So they found 60 different flaws across 22 different home routers that you might buy. Uh, and, you know, we've been talking all year. It's a, we talked about it on uh, BSD Now this uh, last week, how your New Year's resolution should be to make sure you replace that off-the-shelf router you bought with Love something it. that runs Linux or BSD. That's a great idea. That you control and you update mm-hmm. because those devices are pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but luckily now, uh, as people's requirements have gotten higher and everybody wants gigabit and so on, CPUs and the amount of RAM and so on that they have in the little off-the-shelf devices have gotten to the point where you can actually run a real OS on it now. Yeah. So, you know, like the, the TP-Link that we did at BSD can, you, you know, you strip down a version of FreeBSD and you can run it on that on the same router. Sure. So it's got the form factor you want and everything. Or now we have those little APU boards and Atom machines that give you that, you know, it's like 12 watts or something instead of uh, 200 and it's quiet and no, no fans, doesn't make any noise, and it doesn't take up a lot of space. So, you know, and with those, you can run a full OS that you control or use something like PFSense. And uh, so just a, a New Year's reminder that you should really replace that off-the-shelf router with something that I you I love control. that. Yeah, do a little router hygiene. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. That's, a good, that's a good New Year's resolution. So now we're going to move into the area of flaws and network devices. <laughs> what could go wrong here? I'm sure there's yes, nothing to report. Those home routers that everybody has <laughs> keep telling you are terrible. Well, they're even more terrible than we thought. Uh-oh. All right. It's just I'm ready. Horrible. I'm ready. I'm ready. Yes. Uh, so researchers at uh, the Universidad de Europa uh, in <laughs> Mid- Madrid, Spain, have published their research in which they found that the 22 most common consumer network devices in Spain are vulnerable to a total of 60 flaws. Uh, so these are a group of researchers working on their IT master's uh, thesis, or IT security master's thesis at the university, and they found uh, serious flaws in 22 different Soho networking devices. Shocked, Alan, I'm shocked. From, 
uh, D-Link, Belkin, Linksys, Huawei, Netgear, Zizel, etc. Uh, most of the devices they surveyed are the ones distributed by ISPs in Spain. Uh, so these vulnerabilities have a very large impact since almost every internet user in Spain will have one of the 22 devices they tested against. Uh, across them, they found 11 different types of vulnerabilities, including persistent uh, cross-site scripting, which is, for example, on the one router, uh, it has a thing where you can go in and block a website by its name. Well, if you write some HTML into that box, then every time you load that page, that HTML runs, and you can actually uh, exploit somebody's machine with that. No. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I, I don't even know how you managed to surprise me with this. I think every time you give me one of these stories, I'm like, okay, yeah, not surprised, not yeah. surprised. Then they have <laughs> uh, unauthenticated cross-site scripting, which would allow someone to uh, inject code into the router screens. Uh, cross-site request forgery, which would allow someone to, while you're on some evil web page on the internet that maybe you got fished to, yeah. it would allow that page to trick you into posting directly to your... Um, your firewall device and changing a setting. With, whereas normally with cross-site request forgery prevention stuff, if you didn't submit the form originally on the router, it wouldn't let it apply to the router. Yeah. Uh, there are also denial of service ones where you could just stop the device from working. Privilege escalation on one of those you could... Um, on, in addition to the regular admin account with the default password, there's yeah. also a separate user account with the default password that most people don't know about. Okay. Well... If you FTP into the device as that user, uh, you can download the configuration file, the config.xml, which just so happens to contain the root password in plain text. <laughs> no. And so, yeah. so you go in and change the admin no. password to keep people out. But if you log in as user with the password no, user, you can no. download the config file and find out what the no. admin password is and then just log in as administrator with the password. Jeez, <gasps> how noob could Why they be? Why is it in plain text? Why can an uh, unprivileged user access a sensitive file? It's, it's so why, negligent, why, it why, almost why? feels intentional. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure mm-hmm. it was raw ignorance. So speaking of intentional, yeah. the next one is a backdoor. Oh, jeez. The uh, there's also some information disclosure vulnerabilities, a uh, bypass authentication by using SMB symlinks. If you make a symlink on a SMB that's shared by the device, uh, you can trick it into letting you in because a file exists or points uh, to something. To an area that wasn't normally shared or something? Yeah, or, <laughs> or some file you're not supposed to be able to access. So that's just a straight-up SMB config problem right there. SMB follow link, yeah, well, right? Right, and that, well, it's being built into the SMB that's built into yeah. the router. Yeah, Because right? all these routers now have USB yeah. ports where you can attach a hard drive yeah. and there'll be a file server. Yeah. Um, there's also bypass authentication or bypass the authentication on the device by plugging in a USB. Hmm. You plug in a certain USB and you can do whatever you want on the device without having to log in. And then there's just regular bypassing authentication where you can just change settings without having to log in first. And then almost every one of the devices is vulnerable to some problem with the universal plug and play. Yeah, there's a shocker, huh? Yeah. So all of this makes me glad that my router is free PSD. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how many times have we said PFSense on this show? Exactly. Oh, wow. Or uh, the best part is that recently learned about uh, some regular, like the problem most people have with PFSense is, you know, oh, it's going to be a big box or I'm going to have to buy something special or, you know, if I use an old PC, it'll consume a lot of power or whatever. And, you know, uh, companies like um, Net. NetGate make little devices uh, to run PFSense, like, and the PFSense store sells them. Uh, but 
uh, recently learned that TP-Link makes a device, the WDR3600, uh, which actually has a 560 megahertz MIPS chip. <laughs> uh, but you can reflash it from their firmware to run FreeBSD or a Linux issue like DDWRT. Uh, the big difference with this device is it's got the four-port gigabit switch, uh, two separate Wi-Fi's, one that does 300, megahertz, uh, 300 megabits at 5 gigahertz, and a separate one that does 300 megabits at 2.4 gigahertz, so you can do both of them at the same time. So, you yep, know, if you yep. have lots of devices yep. and so on, you can actually do wireless N on both separate channels at the same time yeah. to get even more bandwidth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And unlike most other routers, because it's got such a beefy MIPS CPU, it can do 800 megabits per second through its NAT. Oh, I'll take it. Yeah. And it costs $50. Wow. I did so not expect I, that. I have a crate of fifty or 20 of them in my basement right now, <laughs> uh, and we're taking them to BSD Can, where we're going to solder serial ports onto them, and uh, people have already signed up to buy them all. That's awesome, Alan. You, you know... <laughs> So hold on, are you shipping those? Are you gonna are you gonna check well, no, all no, that? Sorry. Like we we did we did a basically it was a bulk, but we organized it with people that are going to BSD can. And we're like, we found this, who wants one? And yeah. everybody signed up. Yeah. And then I bought them and I'm gonna take them to BSD can. <laughs> I love it. And then we're going to tear them all apart, solder extra solder a Gotta have a serial port. You gotta have a it's exactly. hey, hey, it is two thousand and fifteen. You have gotta have a serial port. Well they have two USB ports, but we needed a serial port. And it has the header for it, we just had to add the device. <laughs> I like that they didn't even bother connecting it themselves. <laughs> they put the header well, on it. It's there for debugging. Yeah, okay. But wow, so this is a real mess. An extra and $10 for the components and wires. And the list of, of vulnerabilities is still scrolling on the screen. I've never stopped it from oh, yeah. scrolling here. And what uh, strikes me about this, and I know everybody that has listened to this show for a while knows, is, oh, Chris is getting up on that soapbox again. It's the second segment in a row. But listen, you guys. How are you going to go and put the Internet of Things all up in your business when you can't even get this stuff working? Don't tell me about Internet-connected internet doors and locks. This is the device that's supposed to pr- protect your Internet-connected door lock yeah. from being attacked over the Internet. Yeah. So, so far what I've witnessed is you put Internet in my TV and then after about a year or two you fail to update that properly and it runs like crap. You put Internet in my lights also, and – you do update it by injecting ads forcing me not to in- update. Yep. Yep. So I'm just saying, how are you going to go tell me that the Internet of Things is going gonna, is gonna to be the next big revolution to consumer electronics when the previous revolution to consumer electronics is a total, total mess and you haven't even solved the problem? I know I say it all the time, but it just seems like this is such a warning sign. Yes. But what we, we need to you know, specify here is what we want is the Internet of Open Source Things where, yeah. you know – there are updates and such. That's an interesting problem. That's not what people are going to buy at a store. And that's, yeah. That's, yeah. Well, hopefully, eventually, that was what maybe will gain larger traction. Like, I don't know. Sure, but it's like even if it is open source and so on, is my mom going to update her Internet of Things device? <laughs> right. Right. Well, so I guess we really have no other wisdom to leave the audience with, other than stop using uh, the routers. Yeah, buy a device that you can run something serious on like FreeBSD or DDWRT. Right. Well, Mr. Jude, uh, I, uh, I have to say I'm happy. Honestly, is like we talked about at the beginning here, the devices distributed by the ISPs that have these problems or when the ISPs purposely put their own back doors into it. Yeah. Uh, but the way is the problem is when they combine them into the modem. And so you can't replace it with your own device. I'm happy to say that both at JBHQ and JB one, uh, we have managed to replace the ISPs, 
router devices with dedicated firewalls now. And uh, in both circumstances, we noticed improvements across the board with uploading and downloading multiple large files simultaneously. When we replace oh, yes. the, the... Most of those devices have tiny, tiny yeah. amounts of, yeah. of RAM and so yeah. on. And, and most of them, just they have really cheap, small CPUs. That's one of the biggest things about this, that TP-Link one, is that it's a really beefy CPU uh, for a device like that. You know, MIPS is really, really good at networking because yes. it's big Indian, yeah. and network packets on the network are actually big Indian, and a regular like yep. XC computer has to reverse that. Now, it's not that hard of an operation, but when you're trying to do it as cheaply as possible, having a CPU that just doesn't have to do that step. Yeah, that's nice. yeah. Episode 221, The French Disconnection. That's a great title, yes. Alan. What uh, grabbed your attention about this episode? In this particular one, uh, A, it was uh, another in-the-studio episode. Oh, which yeah. Are always fun. They are. Uh, this is the one in JB1 instead of uh, uh, in your garage at the, the old, old, house. old studio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so... You know, when it's recorded live, that's special. It's also the fourth anniversary show, uh, you know, which was special for us. Neither of us, I think, thought the show would go that long <laughs> when we started it. Um, Especially without interruption. But uh, the top story in this episode was about how to detect when your network has been breached. It was a little more meta episode. It was less about a specific news story and more a kind of just, oh, we've got all day to sit around and work on show notes, so let's come up with something really cool. Uh, and basically, it has great details on the actual methodology used to just to kind of detect problems on your network and so on. And then we discuss uh, the Sony hack and the target hacks as example of what to do and what not to do. Right. Uh, specifically like the target ones, they had intrusion detection systems that actually detected the intrusion, but they detected so many false positives that nobody actually checked the results. Right. They were setting off so many alarms that they just silenced it and didn't check the emails. And so, didn't realize that they had detected an attack because they detected too many things that weren't attacks and so on. Right, right. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely worth highlighting this again so that uh, people keep thinking about that. Well, uh, this is a story that um, is almost perfect because so often we talk about all these different hacks, all these different cyber threats, and so many times we're like, well, how did they do the attribution and how do they detect these attacks and how did they even know they were being attacked? Uh, and so, well, or, or specifically... How come it took them three months to find out? <laughs> or, or like in the case of, like, was it cryptic? It took them a year, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, why does this happen, Alan? So uh, that is actually our first story from uh, netsecurity.org. Mm-hmm. Where do we start? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they, they talk about how security spending is at an all-time high. Companies are spending lots of money. Right. Uh, but, and, you know, security breaches at major organizations are still happening all the time, happening a lot. Uh, and the impact of you know these advanced attacks is is reaching boardroom level attention, right? It's not yeah. just a problem for the IT department anymore. Yeah. The the you know the executives are worried about it, and you know the heightened attention to security has freed up funds uh, for many organizations to spend you know even even more money to to mitigate these attacks. But at the same time, it doesn't seem to have actually solved the problem at all. Yeah, funny how that works. And it's a lot of times it seems like when we see these uh, mitigation techniques or or whatever you want to call it, it's um. It's it's always up in the sort of theory and idea level. It's never really like in the practical or, level. Or it's it's a you know a practical thing that solves one very very specific practical problem that is probably not what's going to happen next time. You know, it's, <clears throat> right. it's that one time. It's like all right, so Such so this happened point. last time. So we're going to detect exactly that signature for next time. That is, and so huge. that same attack will never happen again. Yeah. 
but no one's going to try that one again. They're going to be. I want to. I just want to replay back. I just because what you just said is uh, so often when when we're going through these stories and you see these companies, they deep dive, they bring in these super high end um, cyber firms, the cybersecurity firms, and they come in there and they do all this analysis and they build out this all this infrastructure. And we're going to do this and this and this to respond to this attack. I'm thinking of Target, and I'm, right now I'm thinking of Sony. We're gonna we're gonna make these steps to mitigate this risk. And it really doesn't solve the underlying problem that fundamentally the issue was you weren't patching your S or you had an open VPN to your vendor and that was configured yep. improperly. Or your monitoring system was giving so many false positives you were just ignoring it. Right. Oh, and so yeah. perfect. A perfect example, yeah. Alan. Perfect example. And, that and was so the target one. these policies are not solving this. And in the case of Target, right, they had it in their they had it in their alert system all along, but because their alert system was so noisy, they just opted to ignore it. And yep. and these guidelines and things like that are not not addressing that at all. Exactly. And then, you know, so breach detection is in the top of the mind of all security people that are out there buying these solutions. Uh, and, you know, the field of, of security technologies claims to have all kinds of these breach uh, detection, advanced attack, mm-hmm. you know. But it's at an all-time noise level. There's, you know, anytime you have some system that claims to detect attacks, it detects too many things. Right. And so there's so much noise, everybody just tunes it out. And so then, I, and I've been guilty stuff. of it. Well, and, and part of the problem is that usually the big advanced attack starts with some small, minor things that could easily be dismissed as noise. Uh-huh. And they hide down in the noise, and then you don't find out it was something bad until it's too late. And it's funny because it can be things as innocuous as a process on a box is crashing a lot. Yeah, and or, you just think, yeah, or that some box. new some new process has just shown up. <laughs> yeah, that one is less innocuous, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, a, a process crashing a lot. Yeah, it's like or, that's or, really annoying. But it's like, meh. Or, well, you know, it's, we it's because a, somebody's trying to exploit we it. We used and, a little bit more bandwidth than I was expecting this month. Yeah, that, that's definitely a big one. Yeah, I can see how that one would be. Yeah. All right. Uh, so they say uh, security analytics platforms endeavor to bring you know, substantial awareness to security events by gathering and analyzing a broader set of data. And they yeah. always, always want to suck in more and more and more data. But the problem is that the, the greatest harm to an organization are usually found in and prioritized with greater accuracy. But the, the problem is... You get more and more data. That's more and more stuff you have to look through, right? And, and more and more chance of more noise. just getting drowned. And it's yep. sort of the argument against the NSA's bulk collection is like, what's the exactly. point? Of, how do you go so through much, that haystack? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and um, you know, the other thing is, it's not just the noise too, but uh, talking about going through and looking at previous hacks and things like that. You know, you look at the Sony hack and the Sony Entertainment hack, and the the, the political the political conditions. Uh, the, uh, and the media, they blamed it on North Korea, yeah. right? But the reality is anybody who has some technical familiarity with this kind of thing is probably pretty convinced it was a, it was at least, if not an inside job, completely uh, very much well, aided I, I, by an uh, insider. In particular, it was someone that's not inside anymore but who had inside right. knowledge right. and, and they did uh, a reason to have a bone to pick with. And they Sony. worked with whomever or by themselves or whatever. Exactly. Lizard Squad, whatever. I don't, I don't it wasn't Lizard Squad. It was yeah. some Brazilian group. Yeah, whatever, right? But, yeah, but my point exactly. is that's – that's the thing we need explored. That's the thing we need discovered. That's the real threat to your network out there is those people. Mm-hmm. That's the true threat, not North Korea, right? right. Not, not, and and if, if, if when these things happened with Sony Entertainment and we took something as major as this and said, look, at a company, the scale 
and stature of Sony Entertainment was brought down by an insider, that if we shared that information properly, that would genuinely help corporations protect themselves and realize what their true priority is. But because yeah. we obscure it for political reasons to blame it on North Korea, we are actually doing a disservice to other companies for future protection because their priorities are misaligned with the actual reality of the situation. Well, there's I that. think it's a and disservice. Then, yes. And then the second thing is if we try to use Sony as an example and and pick out the exact methods they use to attack them – and safeguard all of our businesses against that, well, the next attacker is not going to use exactly the same methods, <laughs> right? We have to, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. signatures, we need broader signatures that are more, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this style of behavior that's looking like an attack rather than I'm seeing this very specific, you know, the hash of this file matches the one we saw at Sony. So do, you think that's, do you think it's possible to have a system intelligent enough to, to notice that the user is doing something unorn, un, un, unusual? Well, uh, so the first part of the stuff that they're looking at now is what's called Security Information and Event Management, or SEI, or S-I-E-M. Uh, and it says, well, most uh, S-I-E-M products uh, have the ability to collect, store, and analyze security data uh, the meaning of what can be pulled out from that data, such as you know security data and so on, uh, depends on how the data is reviewed, which usually mm. ends up requiring a person. Yeah, uh, and how well uh, a product can uh, perform uh, automated anal- uh, analytics of that stuff and kind of pull out things compared to you know when users are you saying give me a report where every time we saw this happen, right? Uh, it's just not the same, and that's kind of what sets the different products apart and where I don't think it's it's quite there yet because it still takes too much human effort. And, yeah, you need a happy middle ground because it almost that. seems like you'd need some human effort to look at what the system well, is think, detecting. And then, and, and then you know, like you need like a curated report for the human to go through and determine what's important or not. Exactly. Yeah, so it can try to drown out the noise and pick certain things. But I think in the end what you need is kind of a, a, a security platform that yeah. consists of multiple different components. So you need the SIEM and looking at events and things that happen – and you need your regular monitoring reporting, and you need what you just talked about, right. user behavior analytics. Right. So is, they're calling that UBA? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's an example of uh, security analytics that are already gaining more buyer attention. So what uh, user behavior analytics allows the user activity to be analyzed uh, much in the same way a uh, fraud detection system works for monitoring credit cards. Okay. Right? Oh. The UBA systems are uh, looking at you know the users logging in and stuff and be like, that user doesn't normally log into that system. That seems a little suspicious, but okay. That user just logged into another machine they don't normally log into. Google kind of does this like today with Gmail and, and things yeah. like that. So when I log in from Japan, it's like you don't normally log in from Japan. That, that's maybe you met. Yeah. yeah. So that's user behavior analytics. Or you know, if a user starts deleting files or, or copying files they don't normally access and, and a bunch of you – know, if there's a, a – so what you want is kind of like a scoring system. It's like, all right, you did one thing that looks strange – that's one point. Yeah. That doesn't set off an alarm. Yeah, but you just, did a yeah. bunch of things over the last week that yeah. looked strange. Right. You're either an insider who's you know grabbing some data before they quit to take it to a competitor, or you're you know uh, you know the secretary shouldn't be accessing that. Her machine probably right. has a virus. Now this sounds super great from like a network administrator standpoint, where I'm trying to keep track of a lot of users, and I'm worried about an insider attack. Where it scares the crap out of me is a citizen of a country that requires an informed public and a free press. And if this kind of system were to actually be really usable, of course, the first people to do this would be somebody like the NSA. Right. And a so, system like this might prevent a, an Edward Snowden in the future. If, if, yep. if the system could have noticed Edward Snowden 
logging in odd times that weren't maybe related to any open tickets and, and with and credentials he didn't large need. quantities of files. Right, and copying down large quantities of files and with using WGIT to connect internal resources. And if, if it could have noticed these things and alerted somebody ahead of time or locked him out, it might have prevented a pretty big revelation for the public, which some people think was good for uh, a, a d- right. democracy to have. Maybe some people don't. That's that's the side. But if it the same thing is like happening thing. inside a bank with account information, right. you that's the stop. line. Yeah. A bank or, or even Boeing, you know, somebody wants to sell the latest uh, innovation to Airbus or vice versa, right? There, You need to be able to protect that. So that's the line you walk. But you could see where you could create a system that would be pretty scary too. Yeah. Well, especially if the NSA's got black boxes in uh, you know all the trunks on the internet or whatever, and they can start using the same behavior analytics on users on their home connection. That's you know you're only oh, supposed to be monitored geez, by this type of stuff in now, a corporate Come on network, now, right? now you're really freaking me yeah, out. It does, it's not happening yet. So. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. <laughs> so we have a chance to stop it before it starts. Okay. Because once it starts, it's harder to make it go away. That's like Skynet. But anyway, uh, so user behavior analytic systems are effective at detecting meaningful security events, such as a compromised user account or a rogue insider. So it helps you against mm. A, hackers from the outside taking over yep. somebody on the inside, yep. or somebody on the inside just Ed. being that. Yeah. Uh, and then... Uh, although the, many of those UBA systems can analyze more data than just user profiles, such as like devices and geolocations, mm-hmm. oh, this user is doing it from their phone. That's strange. Or this user is doing it from China. Or That's this user is doing it from a location, even if it's you know like uh, uh, like so, something I thought of in the past is like this user is doing it from a location where we believe uh, another person who we uh, are suspecting is doing activity, and right. they could do they could track it that way too, and so the, even the area they've been in, and just let's look at where these people have gone and analyzing it from that standpoint. Yeah. And then, you know, you still have an opportunity to enhance the analytics to include even more data points uh, that increase the accuracy of and hopefully maybe detect a breach. Love it. Uh, but as security analytics platforms grow in maturity and accuracy, a driving factor of the innovation is how much data can be brought in to be analyzed. So you want as much data as possible to analyze. The problem is you just need the, – the output needs to be condensed. And, and yeah, I've never really seen that work well. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, part of it is deciding what data you actually want to capture. Yeah. Like capturing the user's location all the time, maybe it's useful, maybe it's not. Well, so I, the bank I worked at, you know, we had we had several checkpoint firewalls at, at different entry points on the network, and uh, just so many events were generated, so many, so many, the high yep. volume events, and I I think it was like a regulatory thing actually that said keep it all. You can decide what you want to sift through and audit, but we want to be able to go back and look at everything if we have to. And, and I think that's a reasonable approach. It's just you have the volume to, was insane though. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you need some really heavy-duty sifting stuff. Yeah, we had – And it has to be automated. It was it, The system we had used got iterated upon three different times while we were using it and starting from you know MySQL to Oracle and all this different stuff. And it, and it constantly was the front end that could, that could parse and analyze all of that data was never catching up to the amount of data and the new types of sensors we could throw at it. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm a little skeptical. But, yeah. Uh, so theoretically that works, but in practice – uh, Maybe be know, different. Pruning that much data is, is very hard. Maybe different technologies have improved now, but back back yeah. then it was it well, was always. We, we could process the amount of data you had back then very fast. Now, yeah. the problem is now we'd have even more data. more data. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like it seems like the horse race would never end. But yeah. So it, however, the amount of context that can be brought into the analysis is what's really important, right? And without the context, all those are just isolated events that make no sense together. Yeah. But having the context with them makes a big difference. Yeah, context is huge. So, you know, analytic systems on average tend to do better analyzing, you know, lean metadata-like data rather than having all the stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, that's 
kind of where the NSA went, right? If we instead of trying to look inside everybody's phone calls, we just look for people that made a bunch of mm-hmm. calls and, and they couldn't like, store it all anyways. Exactly. And it's easier to process metadata. Exactly. And then you have all of those uh, handy uh, justifications of privacy protection. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, this allows them to quickly and on almost real time produce interesting findings. Uh, the challenge in this approach is that major security events such as breaches don't happen all at once, right? Uh, it may start with an early indicator. Something happens. Mm-hmm. You know, there was... Uh, uh, the application on the web server crashed because mm-hmm. somebody, you know, buffer overflowed it and, and got a remote code execution. Yeah. Well, we I don't know, know that happened. Yeah. All yeah. we know is that web server crashed. Right. We see a patch and, and then, whatever's down. Yeah. A few hours later, another minor event. Right. Uh, which turned in, you know, the following days or months later, then there was a data leakage event. And right. Then, right. And then right. something else happened. Yeah. And then yeah. in the end, those three things are looked at as a single incident. Then things start to make sense. Yes. But if you only look at the leakage, right. you don't know how did they get in. Yeah. Well, if we connect these other events. Right. But then in the end, it's like, well, how can you connect three crashes? months to get you there, though? Right. Well, it, the stuff happened three months apart. Yeah. But in, in the end, how do you know that, well, that, that my web server crashed? Does that mean that's related to this or is it completely unrelated? Right. And, and you know, the, the, the stuff is not all there yet. Boy, yeah, it makes it just makes when you think about the uh, when you when you think about the the real tool set that administrators have to tackle this problem yeah. today at the ground level is logs. Yeah, and that just and, and most logs don't contain the information you end up wanting. Well, and they don't they don't show you the event. They don't show you the broader picture. They show you Apache crashed, and that yeah. is such a you're so down in the trenches with that bit of information. There's you, how could you even be it's expected fair, to like if you don't have a backtrace to look at what part of Apache crashed? Yeah, yeah it, it's it's unreasonable to think yeah. you might zoom out and go, is this part of an attack? And if you did every time, you'd be a you'd be a wreck every time Apache crashed. Yeah, so that's <laughs> just there's no winning. Yeah. Uh, but you know that's why. Uh, the overall priority in this instance made up of lesser events, and now uh, the priority is much higher, and that's why we have to have these lookbacks where we, once we see something higher priority, we have to look through everything that happened yeah. in the last two months or something that makes sense. and be like, hey, yeah. is there anything in that yeah. that seems to fit into this, this pattern? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so ultimately how actual human users interface with the output of huge amounts of data analytics will greatly determine if the technology is adopted or deemed to produce useful information. Because if I can't get useful information out of it, paying all this money for this software yeah. <laughs> solution is, is a waste of time. That's how I felt uh, at the yeah. time. Like other disciplines that have leveraged large data analytics to discover new things or produce new output, uh, visualization of that data greatly affects its adoption. And uh, we talk a bit more in uh, later in this episode or next episode about attack maps and how while we you know everybody's thinking oh yes we're visualizing what's happening it's so useful but if you think about it you know the ones you see it's just like a constant stream of things going back and forth you don't don't see the three the you know the little event and then the other little event and then the data leakage three months later Uh as being related and so those attack maps you know when they don't tell you what type of attack it is, really they're show. just showy things that get you to buy something. Yeah, yeah. it's literally just fancy animation. I mean, on they're the neat. Put it up in your lobby if you want. I guess if you have an yeah, IT company. But, but the problem is that the security solution provider uh, takes that up to your management, shows them. They're like, oh yeah, and they buy that, and then it turns yeah. out well the product doesn't actually yeah. do anything for it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yes, while visualization is important, it can't be the only thing. Right. You have to have actual good data to visualize. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's mm-hmm. just pretty pictures. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I was thinking back through, uh, through like, uh, one of the big differences t- 
to when we had all this data to manage till now is like big data is like a is like a buzzword now and like there are yeah. there are a lot more tools to process this stuff than there used to be so yeah, it is most changing big data a bit. stuff is both. but it makes you think it, it really does make you think like you you have to be ready to tie things together and make it click because that's really your best tool right now is going to be clever stay clever and just start thinking about this stuff in the broader context yeah. when you can uh, and watch that stuff yeah i uh, you know keep your eyes peeled and uh and make sure you're not getting drowned in uh, notifications and shit. <laughs> yeah. It seems like that's really your your first line of, of defense is making sure you have a really good offense on your monitoring. Make sure your well, monitoring is in, tight. In particular, you need to be able to tell every time something happens, uh, what is different now than was there yesterday yeah. and stuff, right? And don't, so, don't let uh, like, the false alert slide too long. Yeah, right? exactly. Keep it tight. Yeah, if, if you keep getting false alerts, look into why and, and, yeah. and tune your, your warning levels and your crit levels and so on. Because otherwise it's uh, just not worth and it. And be careful not to tune it too much the other way. I've done that before. I was like, mm. you know, don't nag me about this thing until it's consistently <laughs> yeah. not worked for like five monitoring checks at five minutes. It's like, well, okay, so now the thing's down for half an hour before my phone beeps. Like, that's that's not a good enough solution anymore. No. So it's like, all right, we have to have a more reliable way to monitor it. Yeah. Before we move on, let's thank DigitalOcean, another great sponsor all year long here on the TechSnap program. Go to DigitalOcean and use our promo code SNAPOcean to give yourself a credit and to say thank you for supporting this show. You can apply to your account. It's really easy and straightforward to do it. DigitalOcean Digital rocks my on-demand infrastructure. They are so straightforward and simple to set up with great data centers all over the world. In 55 seconds or less, you can get a server going for $5 a month with pretty great loadout, all SSDs, a terabyte of transfer, 512 megabytes of RAM for five five bucks a month. I, I can't even get... I mean, I don't know what prices are like where you live, Alan, but I can't even get like a burger for $5. So the fact that $5 a month for the entire server is really great. And their pricing structure is really straightforward and the steps right up. But if you use the promo code SNAPOcean, one word, lowercase, you get that $10 credit. Check out their interface. It is really, really slick. Here's the distros you can deploy. Ubuntu, CentOS, Debian, Fedora, CoreOS, and they've got free BSD as well. One-click applications of things like Cassandra, Django, Docker, Drupal, Ghost, GitLab, Joomla, LAMP. These are all own cloud. WordPress, Ruby on Rails, MongoDB. There you go, Alan, MongoDB. One-click deployment right there on your DigitalOcean droplet, plus tons of great tutorials. And use our promo code SNAPOcean. You can try any of it out. Two months for absolutely free. SNAPOcean supports the show and gives you a $10 credit. That's a great setup. A great system, super easy to use, very powerful. And lots of people in the JB audience have found it very, very useful. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. I love it. I love my Dio droplets. So one, uh, one more episode or a couple more episodes we're going to look back before we get to our new roundup stories. Uh, episode 212. I love this. Speaking of Docker, dominant Docker disasters. <laughs> yes. So you have to check out the episode if you want to learn about that. Yeah. But the story I picked from this one. Uh, which is uh, a second episode we did live in the studio right after the previous one. Oh, cool. Uh, but it's the story of the man who broke the music industry. Uh, so it's actually uh, behind the scenes of the MP3 pirate scene back when it first started up. And, you know, how this guy worked at the CD pressing plant and managed to, like, exfiltrate albums before they even shipped to the stores mm-hmm. and get them up on the internet. And uh, it just gives a lot of behind the scenes of how all that worked back in you know the 90s and 2000s and so on and being that i was young and into some of that stuff back then it was uh quite interesting yeah very revealing Mm -hmm. as just how different things are now and 
because you know this is all pre BitTorrent and you know just a lot different than things are today. Basically, going back to the time of the internet when MP3 was invented, the the codec came out, and now if you wanted to upload a music CD, uh, you could compress it and it'd be a couple megabytes you know, instead of seven hundred megabytes. Do you know how I got my first MP3s? My local FM radio station was just posting the songs they played on their radio station up as MP3s for you to download because they didn't understand there was anything wrong with it. So the first couple of MP3s I got was like, a, uh, um, you know, downloaded just from a radio ra- from the local radio station because they were just, hey, here's the music we're playing, have yeah. a download. And it was like it was like Blink and other other bands huh, and cool. yeah. Uh, my first MP3 I tried to play on my 486 and it didn't work because the CPU <laughs> wasn't fast enough. Yes. <laughs> and after that, I got into it a little bit more. Uh, and right, I had used WAV files before, but they're uncompressed and they were right. like huge and I didn't really get into it much. Of it. When I think of the man, quote unquote, that broke the music industry, I think of some elite pirate who uh, who got thousands of CDs and ripped them to MP3s and uploaded them to Usenet or torrent sites. I think of a sophisticated hacker who was aware of trends before everybody else was. I think of somebody who was like the pioneer of the Napster network. Uh, but that's not what happened at all, is it? Uh there, there were, yeah, there were basically multiple people that had a little bit of element of each of those different things. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this story over at the New Yorker talks about uh, the inside story of of one of the major groups uh, that started pirating MP3s, and it starts uh, with the the one guy there, uh, Del Glover, uh, who worked at the CD pressing plant, and so basically, you know, the the music master would come in, usually like literally in a limo in a locked briefcase, <laughs> and it would go up into the plant and they would uh, set it up and then start print pressing out the CDs that you would buy. Uh, and then his job was he was on the feeder side of the shrink wrap machine. So he would make sure the CDs go in and then in the case and <laughs> then they would go through get shrink wrap and right. the guy on the other side would put them in a box. Right. And as they were getting shrink wrapped they were being counted to make sure that none would go missing. Uh, oh. Yep. And then uh, Those don't fit happened. your ears do they? But no. No. Just, I'm, I'm used to my ones that wrap over my do you ears have, and hold Do you on. have small ear holes or really big ear holes? Uh, bigish. I don't know. Yeah, I think they're bigish. Yeah. I, I could grab another. You it got big matter. holes. Out. Anyway, all right. <clears throat> uh, so the, uh, this guy was in the unique position of everybody in the plant to be able to steal the CDs without them being noticed that they were gone. Right. As soon as everybody after him, the CDs were counted. <laughs> yeah. And if one goes missing, they weren't looking for it. Right. Whereas his job involves actually, he would have some of the rejects and stuff, and would actually be in charge of throwing them away. So they're definitely. You know, nobody notices one that we're supposed to throw away didn't go thrown away or whatever. Uh, and so, but this guy's smart. He didn't do the smuggling of the disc out of the plant himself. Uh, he had other people do it and then would pay them ah, and buy the CDs. So it uh, wasn't as easily to track him, was it? Right. Uh, and so the biggest advantage this guy had over the regular pirates and so on was that he would get the music like a month before it would go to the store. Because mm. they're pressing them and getting them all ready. And they a premium the product, as it were. Yeah. So he would have the latest rap CDs or whatever. Well, originally, the music he had wasn't stuff that people were really interested in, uh, not people on the internet. Because at the time, <laughs> back, back then, uh, the people on the internet were not people that would be interested in, I think the examples were like Sheryl Crow and Rod Stewart and stuff right. like that. People on the internet were yeah. maybe more uh, uh, eclectic. But, uh, a couple of years later, uh, Universal bought that plant. And then all of a sudden they had all the rap music, which is what a bunch of people wanted, right? They had like Eminem and oh. Jay-Z and, oh, okay. and Dr. Dre okay. and that okay. kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, and so this guy's having this stuff like a month early. And uh, he's uh, – so what would happen is he would uh, get somebody to smuggle it out and then he would buy that CD from them, rip it, turn it into an MP3 and upload it. And then the guy that ran the pirate group 
was the guy that kept track of which music's coming out, who's going to want it, and so on, right? Because the way the so the, he so the guy that's from the Pirate Group, he's like he's paying attention to consumer demand, trends, yep. like yep. all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and he's it, like he's really into like, even the the culture of the competition yeah. between he's the rappers. Truly, and stuff. He truly has a customer base that he's trying to identify well, with even, and satisfy. Part, part of it was that he was just interested in as his himself, right? He was a consumer of that. Ah, uh, yes, himself. of course. So he was passionate. very into passionate. the like the uh, fake rivalries and stuff between the gangs, the the gangster rappers, and so on. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, the guy that was stealing the CDs from the plant wasn't really that interested in music. So he would upload them, and in exchange, what he got was access to what are called the top sites. <laughs> so basically, if you think of the um, the hierarchy of, of how piracy works to be an upside-down tree, the top site at the top is the stuff where all this, the originals of everything go. The root. And then they get filtered down to yeah. other stuff yeah. and filtered down to other stuff. Yeah. And then nowadays, the, once you get down to two or three levels, that's when eventually somebody posted to a torrent site. Yes. So one of the interesting things is most of this is still how the pirate scene works. Part of it is uh, like you see the little group names at the end of every pirate release. Yeah. Yes, of course, um, like Control well, HD or whatever. Yeah. 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 Well, when, when one of the groups releases something, nobody else is release, can release the same thing. So if you get there first, you get all the credit for that release. Really? Yeah. So I didn't know it like if it's like a cap that. of a TV show, if you do your release, everybody else that's trembling to try to do it too, they have to just give up. Now, if, if there's something wrong with yours, then yeah. they can nuke yours and Cuz a lot of times I'll see different groups release the same thing. Yeah, but usually it, it can't be exactly the same thing. Like so one group will do like the 720p, right. one will have the will do 1080p SD. and yeah. one will do like Blu-ray with DTS audio yeah, or, or something like that. Yeah. But in general, uh, unless uh, there's something wrong and it gets nuked, then the first group gets all the credit. Right. And that's that's basically one of the only reasons they do it. Okay. Uh, it's it's you know they're not making any it's money. It's the pride off of, it of being the first. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's where the genesis of the whole thing came from back in the day, partly even before the internet. Like so a lot of these groups existed on the old BBS days, where uh, there was also the job of courier, whose job it was to dial in one BBS, yeah. download the files, <laughs> dial into yeah. four other BBSs, and upload them. And this guy got access to the files early because he would be in charge. He would have the long distance phone bill for procuring mm. the files, and, yeah, and have to, you know, he would, he would spend money on a, a and, fast modem and, and take stuff. the risk too, yeah, yeah. And, and there's the whole. So anyway, uh, the guy in the story uh, would get access to the top sites, and then he would download movies, and then he built a couple of duplication towers and was so, spinning out DVDs like crazy. And so if I'm them. if I'm tracking you, uh, dude sells music CDs. In exchange for access to, to pirated movies. movies. So, he, he's, he's, so then he can sell the pirated movie discs at, <laughs> at, in the parking lot of the gas station, apparently. <laughs> oh. um, but part of, the, part of it is because, A, he liked movies better. But also, B, this way, there was no suspicion of – he wasn't ever selling music, only yeah. movies. Yeah. So the people at the CD distribution plant never looked at – like they never got a hint of what he was doing. But if they had – it wouldn't have been music, and, and they wouldn't have thought of him as right. being the guy that was leaking right. the CDs. Right, because there's just no, no correlation there. Yeah. Huh. But anyway, the story, the the article here goes in in very good detail all the way through the system. Yeah, and about and, the ISPs he jumps around yeah, through, and, and the uh, uh, how the IRC channels worked, and mm-hmm. the leader of the group, and, mm-hmm. and how that uh, the mistake they made there uh, was actually the using like cell phones to talk to each other. Yes, and uh, yes. Uh, so eventually, the FBI got in and, and raided these guys, and uh, the guy in the story got a couple of months for one minor charge. Uh, mostly got off in order to testify against the leader, uh, but the leader they didn't actually have enough evidence. All they had was the fact that he had the first guy in his cell phone as just the letter D, uh, and apparently, you know, only that guy ever calls me that or something. It was a very mm. loose mm. Uh, correlation. Mm-hmm. And then one other thing, I forget what it was. Maybe one of the CDs or something. 
I forget what it was. Well, he had released. uh, It says here he had released a pre-release album that was like only available at his his specific area. So they they knew it was somebody from his area that released that, and they tracked it back to him from there. But I just mean uh, (laughs) the second piece of evidence they had against the leader. Oh, oh, uh, oh, 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 of the of the MP3 pirating group. Yes, the leader of the pirating group ended up getting acquitted because the government didn't have enough evidence that (laughs) it was actually he was the guy that was the leader. Yeah, because he was just an online profile. Uh, but anyway, it goes in lots of good detail, and it's uh, just very interesting, especially if, like me, I was like 13, mm-hmm. uh, watching mm-hmm. this stuff happen on IRC mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and knowing a little bit about it, but not that much. Yeah. And then yeah. in college, yeah. I, 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 one of my classmates was actually a courier, uh, and so he had access. And so, uh, you know, huh. he, was, he was always the guy to talk to for <laughs> stuff because he always had it before – Well. Torrents just started to come out like my very first year of college. So when I was in high school, and I told I, told, I said that radio station was posting the MP3s online. Yep. Uh, well, so the next because I worked in the IT department as a high school student, the next logical conclusion was: well, I like these songs, but everybody else in school likes different songs. We should all get together and share our songs. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. created. A, I've never really said this on air because I think it was probably illegal. I created an, a public FTP site on the school district's network because everything had public IP addresses. Everything did. And I called it the Pimp Dex. And I, and I invited all the students of the high school to upload the MP3s that they had found because there was no Napster at the right. time. Yeah, there was no, something like that. There's definitely no LimeWire. You, you basically – BitTorrent You was, had to know about IRC, yeah. how it was, where it was, yeah. what the keys were. So what Go I into did, the secret though, room and ask bots that were run off hacked I, Windows servers I created to a, send you the files. What I did is I, I created an FTP login and I would go see sneaker net style and I would say here's the FTP login upload all the mp3s and download any you like and I had a little FTP banner that said if you download some mp3s please add some and within yeah. a few weeks I had and hundreds uh, FTP software had ratios where yes. yeah, it, yeah, yeah. if you upload a song you yes. download two songs and yes force I did to, turn that on yep. eventually and, and, and that was the pimp decks and uh, it was on school district equipment and once I realized like as as like Napster came along and I realized oh I'm this is pirate. I didn't, that didn't even cross my mind at the time. Right. I didn't realize it was stealing at the time. And um, so when I did shut it down, one of the students made like an image backup of it and then ended up posting it online <laughs> later on. I was like, oh, no, that's not what I intended at all. Yeah. But what I learned from that was there was a genuine passion for people to share that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, it was the early days well before there was uh, – But anyway, uh, that article uh, goes into a lot of good detail. It's just a really good story. Yeah. Uh, you know, really good reading. It's a really but, long uh, Also, yeah. And if you if you've ever been, you know, even on the periphery of some of this stuff, it's just very interesting to see it from the inside and, and even mm-hmm. almost kind of the far side from the the guys that get the stuff a, a month early. And, and yeah, it, it talks a bit about why they did it in different places. Like, there's the main guy in the story was doing it to, to get movies to sell for five dollars a disc yeah, and, make, and money. make money. Yeah. Uh, but there were some other people that a just in it for the reputation or stuff. Right. But it also talked about people love know, the music. Uh, people that were like a music promoter and would get information uh, early about like when the albums are coming out or what's being recorded mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and how they kind of networked all this inform- intelligence about hmm. the music business together hmm. in order to, to plan how they're going to do this. Hmm. And it also talks about how I think it was one of the Eminem albums. They actually, uh, the release date was supposed to be September, but they leaked it in like July and they had to force, they had to move up the release date in order, since everybody was already getting it. Hmm. Or there was another time when there was a, uh, a, a, the music, the label had uh, set up a, a contest or a fight between these two rappers. And it was totally if, fake though. Yeah. But if, if the one rapper's album sold more copies than the other, he was going to, ret- if, if he lost, he was going to retire from, from music. All right. And so, 
the the guy in the story managed to get both uh, original discs uh, from the plant. And then he's sitting there. I have the power to decide which one of these rappers wins. <laughs> or he's kind of like, I wonder, I wonder what would happen. And so he basically did one and then waited a couple days and then did the other. Mm-hmm. And, so maybe, mm-hmm. and it turns out the one that got pirated first sold more copies. Mm-hmm. Because as we've seen many times, mm-hmm. you give people the taste and they want to go buy my, my Especially own, if they want to support the artist. My so. old story, going back to that Pimp Dex and then Napster later on, I never bought a CD in my life until I started getting these MP3s. Yep. And then I realized, oh, this yeah. is something I like. I the music. Like it. It's kind of worked like the yeah. music store used to have you know, a pair of headphones and you listen yeah. to an album yeah. and see if yes. you like it. Yes. It was the yeah. same thing. Yeah. Right? Uh, so anyways. Especially back then when the MP3 quality was not nearly as good as what you would get from a CD. Mm. It would sound like, you know, kind of like ass. It's it's <laughs> fascinating to be sitting at this point and look at this and be like, oh, that is that is now history. Yeah. It, it's really, you know, I'm, I'm glad the story of so, – because some of this stuff is kind of shady, it's yeah. – I'm glad that the actual yeah. story of how it went and – Yeah, stuff what that you didn't really like. get before. Yeah, well, basically, normally – that was the kind of information I expected to just be lost forever. Yeah. But that story is really good. Well, and these people are still alive, so yeah. they can still go get the information. Yeah. And, All right. And most of them, had, you know, uh, the main – and it t- talks a little bit about what they did after. Like WW says in the chat room, back when Winamp was good. I'm looking forward to the next clip. Uh, it's from episode 237, and it was just after Alan's trip to the Open ZFS conference, which was a pretty big deal, Alan. Yeah. Um, it was my first time to the Open ZFS conference, and kind of one of the first conferences I went to that was – as technical as a BSD conference, but with a different audience of people. Mm. Uh, there were only like three or four other FreeBSD-specific people at the conference, and most of the other people worked on other stuff. There was a lot of Linux people, Solaris people, et cetera, uh, you know, appliance vendors, and everybody there was very passionate about ZFS, mm. Mm. but not necessarily in, you know, they, it was very weird when a bunch of them came to me to ask, how does this work on FreeBSD? Like, you have this... What's that witness system? We want something like the lock order checking built right into ZFS that so would be platform agnostic. So it started to really like, feel like... That's actually over my head, but I can probably put you in touch with the right people. Wow, wow. That is really something. But yeah, it was a very interesting event just to kind of branch out a little bit, but actually to be representing BSD in, you know... I go to a BSD conference and most people know who I am, but, but you know, they all already know what BSD is and so on. Right, whereas, yeah. Uh, the ZFS conference was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And uh, a lot of work got done, too. And uh, it's something I'd like to see the FreeBSD conferences do a little bit more is actually have like a hackathon where things actually get worked on, even if it's just a prototype or whatever. And it uh, might be cool to do like they uh, did at the ZFS conference yeah. and have uh, prizes for the best prototypes. Ooh. Uh, so we started uh, the night before. We all met up. Uh, not all. Uh, a bunch of us met up at uh, a kind of a... A pub, but San Francisco style, so it was like <laughs> they sold sausage, <laughs> and and that was and like you bust your own table, and it was, no. it was strange, but really, it was cool. Yeah, um, probably nothing. Really, you bust your own table. Yeah. Okay. All right. Is that? Do you have Basically, anything like that up in your neck of the woods? A couple, like a, yeah, like some of the barbecue places are kind of like that, but yeah, this yeah. was just okay. Okay. a little strange. All right. All right. Um, but it was cool. Uh, so yeah, just a whole bunch of us sitting around talking, drinking, and, and eating and so on. Uh, and so that was good. And then I went back to my hotel and uh, we started bright and early the next day at uh, the Children's Creativity Museum in the theater there. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so it was a very nice venue. They have a nice quiet theater room with seating, like uh, stadium-style seating. Uh, and 
everybody could see. They had the projector set up and we did there. Uh, we started, we had breakfast and then we did that and then we had a break. Um, the big change they made this year over previous years is they left uh, longer breaks so that people have more time to just talk informally and get to know people. I and love and so that. I love that. Yeah. It's, you know, the hallway track is very important. Uh, and yes, out in the hallways, they also had uh, tables from a bunch of the different companies that did stuff. Um, but it started uh, right off the beginning with uh, the opening keynote uh, where Matt basically just gave us uh, what he called metadata about how the rest <laughs> of the conference is going to be <laughs> and so on. Uh, but the video for that is online. Uh, and then the first uh, presentation after that was from Nexenta, which is a company that makes a storage appliance based on OpenZFS. And they sold some success stories of people with their products, which included uh, Hyundai, the car manufacturer, collecting oh, yeah. data. They uh, are going, they're on track to generate more data per year than they have in the last 20 years put yeah. together. And that's got to be a that's got to be a story that in some form or another is pervasive throughout the industries, right? Yeah. Uh, but then they had the great one for geeky people, uh, the new Star Wars Seven movie. Uh, all the production and CGI and all that is stored on Nexeta appliances, so that's Illumos running OpenZFS. Wow. Uh, and uh, they don't know how big that one's actually going to end up being yet. Uh, or it's still in talk progress. About it or yeah. Okay. Uh, wow. But well, I guess it's probably not in progress anymore because it it airs in like oh, two Christmas. months, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, the movie Gravity, uh, which had uh, George Sandra Clooney Bullock. and Bullock, yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, that one uh, because it was filmed in 3D at like 72 frames per second, and they have like all the CGI, the CG source stuff, and all of that. Uh, turns out to be about 12 petabytes of data. Whoa. Yeah, uh, so the <laughs> movie files are huge, and if you had 12 petabytes of data, first of all, are you really going to want to use something other than ZFS? Because <laughs> administratively, how are you going to manage that? Yeah, how does and that even secondly, happen? secondly, <laughs> um, if it's the source for your movie, you probably kind of need to keep it around. Data integrity so, becomes rather important. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> also, that's a great picture. There's uh, myself and uh, Brian Kentrell having breakfast, I think, and then he's uh, shaking hands with Matt Aaron's. Yeah, yeah, there you are on the yes. side there to the right, yeah. Uh, yes, uh, Brian Cantrell is going to be back on BSD Now uh, next month with another awesome rant. So. <laughs> I remember the Ubuntu Kills Kittens rant. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, after that, um, another requested session they had had was Kirk McCusey gave his OpenZFS internals talk, which is kind of uh, a slightly broader overview of how the different parts of ZFS work so that uh, it would make it easier for people that maybe weren't initiated on all the different parts of ZFS uh, to understand the talks that would come after it. Uh, so just kind of mm, talked. That's you know, clever. This is actually in a broad sense that people can just understand what how the different bits of ZFS go together. And you know, when you hear somebody talk about the MOS, this is what a meta right. object set is. Here's the and common. How it works. It's, it's establishing a common language for everybody to share going through the conference, so that way we're all using yeah. the same words. That's really clever. Exactly, and so you can understand the rest of it. So that was great. Uh, and then they started the presentations. Uh, Delphix presented masked ZFS send. Uh, so this basically, they have the need to replicate uh, databases. Hmm. But databases often contain sensitive information like credit card numbers or social security numbers or something, and how do you back that up when you don't necessarily trust the other side and so on? So they come up with this way uh, that basically they uh, erase just the credit card numbers from the backup. Oh. And then replicate the rest of it. 
Wow. Uh, but in a way that you can still do incremental backups. Yeah. Huh. Uh, and the way they, they showed it, um, as the example, they showed a, a picture of, uh, I think it was the original uh, ZFS open sourcing party. So it was a bunch of developers standing around with, like, bottles of alcohol. Uh, and it's like, maybe they don't want this picture to end up on Facebook. So then it goes in and replaces all of their faces with, uh, like, the troll face thing or whatever, right? Um, and then it calculates the difference, which is we can keep the whole picture, just not the faces. And then how to replicate that to the off-site and, such, and then, you know, be able to keep it in sync. And, you know, because in, in the end, you'd rather accidentally lose the credit card numbers than have them no exposed doubt. in a backup somewhere, right? No doubt. You can always get people to put their credit card number in again, which is much less than having to tell them that you lost so, their credit card number. So, you know, number. what I noticed, uh, not, that, not, a lot, not that a lot of our listeners probably use iOS. I don't know what the stats are. Actually, I do know what the stats are. I just don't look. Um, I just uh, – I, one of the things I noticed is when you are moving between devices or upgrading between uh, the OS releases – uh, one of the bits of everything gets stored in that upgrade. Like if I move between one iPhone to another iPhone and I do an encrypted backup, everything gets moved. Like the login to my Facebook, my Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of that gets moved, except Apple does not move the credit card information, which is good and bad because it means I have to re-enter the credit cards to use Apple Pay, which is whatever. I mean, I just use it as an experiment, but... Um, they they do they technically do not have the ability to move the credit card informations between phones and between upgrades. You have to re-enter it every single time. And if you think about that on a on a phone, that is extremely frustrating to tap that crap out or try to take a picture of it, and then you have to go through the bank sometimes and reauthorize the the credit card on the phone. Like it's this it's this major process to go through. But it also means that the way that they store it, and this is what I. You know, we talk a lot about like clear text passwords, et cetera, et cetera. The way that they store this is as images that are secured in the CPU, right? As hashes, actually. They're not even images. They're hashes secured yep. in the CPU. And they physically cannot move that between device and device. And it's sort of it, as I was – I'm looking at replacing my phone. So I'm looking at like what my different options are. And I was researching this particular problem because I have been experimenting with Apple Pay and also Google Pay or Android Pay. And also Samsung Pay. And I've been experimenting with these different systems. And so I'm trying to figure out what is involved now when you want to move devices. And on the iOS platform, because the way they've designed it, you don't have access at all. Like the, this, the operating system literally cannot read those that information. There's no way for them to move it or for them to back it up. So it's like this give and take. But Apple's – so what I was reading is Apple's basic opinion is they would rather lose your credit card information every single time in the backup than have to worry about storing that information for you. Yeah. Now, if it was encrypted and you could like move the key, maybe. But that's yeah, what that's actually, that's actually that was actually what I expected to happen. Is mm-hmm. I thought okay, well they would encrypt the backup because I was because they have something called encrypted backup. So you would encrypt the backup to a master phrase, right? And then you would think you would be able to recover that. But they store the they store the credit card information in the actual CPU itself, not right. in the file system of the operating system. Right. Um, and then uh, the second presentation from, from Delphix for that, uh, the, some of the presentations were awfully short because there were so many to go through. Uh, <laughs> but the other one was um, ZFS send compression. So currently when you do ZFS replication, it's actually decompressing any compressed blocks to send them over the network and then recompressing them at the other side. Oh. Which is kind of a waste. Yeah. Uh, part of that was originally because you don't know if the other side has compression or if it even supports LZ4 and so on. 
but now they're basically a flag that says, don't do that, keep it compressed. Uh, and that can uh, speed up things quite a bit. No doubt. And avoid having to do, you know, instead of SN, pipe gzip, pipe SSH, blah, 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 and then G unzip it, and then pipe it into ZFS receive. Uh, and so that'll be nice to have. Yeah. Boy, that actually, yeah, that seems like it could be a major change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then OVH, a big uh, hosting company in, in uh, France and Canada, uh, demonstrated the something they built called Zmotion, uh, which is a way to basically migrate ZFS shares hmm. uh, from uh, one machine to another uh, live. So uh, it basically takes care of the step of take a snapshot, replicate it to the other machine. When that's done, take another snapshot and replicate that and keep doing that until the delta between the snapshots is down to like less than a couple seconds and then switch the IP addresses. Uh, but they also had to deal with the fact so that... did they, I'm, I'm not, Maybe they didn't say, I'm sorry to interrupt, but did, how does the file system change an IP address? How does this file system communicate well, to the no, operating this system? Is a, this, uh, Zmotion's a tool that runs. Oh, so Zmotion is sort of an orchestrator that does yeah. all of this. I see. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then uh, the complication they had was that the... Um, unique ID number of that file system on the second machine would be different. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they had to build a mechanism into ZFS for you allowed to basically to uh, have a, use the persistent uh, GUID that is always going to be the same Uh uh, for those. So that um, the NFS client that's connected doesn't actually know that it's now getting it from a different server. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it Uh, would be completely oblivious to it if the uh, GUID stays uh, the same. Yeah, if the if the ID no, the FS ID number changes, the yeah. NFS client freaks out. Right, uh, and hangs and does all kinds yes. of unreliable uh, the one on things. Linux is especially bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and they, they were talking about that. And like, so after three attempts of different ways to solve this problem, they actually came up with one that works. Yeah. and they're using it. So how do you uh, synchronize the GUID between the machines? Uh, they basically expose it as a ZFS property, and you can just set it. Oh, so you determine it. You just say this is going to be this GUID. Well, in in, the, in particular the. Um, the Z motion script will just copy the ID from the source ah, to the destination. That is slick. Mm-hmm. So that was cool. Uh, then we got story time. Everybody loves story time. Yeah. Uh, so Jeff Bonwick came and presented, uh, who's the guy that started ZFS, uh, presented the birth of ZFS and told the story of how, you know, it. they tried to get started and it didn't really work out. Uh, and it was like, you know, the fifth time Solar, uh, Sun had tried to write a new file system and <laughs> it was doomed uh, from the beginning, I, yeah, by I thought it was eighty people trying to work at it. I honestly beginning. thought it was when I heard Suns working on yet another file system. I thought, oh, good. good. I, I didn't even hear it back then. Uh, but you know, they they gave him a team of like eighty people, and it just wasn't working. And then uh, at one point, uh, he uh, Matt Aaron's showed up uh, as a student, fresh out of school or whatever, and and he interviewed with Jeff, and he basically Jeff promised that they were going to build a file system. And so then when it came up to the point where it wasn't working and Jeff's like, well, we can't not do this because I promised Matt that we we're going to do this. <laughs> so they started fresh with just the two of them and they actually managed to do it. And then they brought in more people after that. There is a lesson. Lots of people. But. There is a lesson in that. Yeah. There is a big lesson in how well, actual uh, software gets created in that. Right. And the big one was about uh, developer buy-in. Uh, the problem with the when we got the team of 80 people is that these weren't 80 people coming to start working on this project. These are 80 people that were working on stuff already and weren't necessarily even interested in doing what he was doing, right? 
Uh, and so, yeah, he tells a great story about that, and it's a good way to, if you're working in an established company where you have all these people that are already kind of in the middle of stuff, yeah, uh, it's great to to understand what it requires to get people to to buy into this idea and actually push it forward. And once they do, the results can be amazing. Yeah. But yeah, he told uh, lots of cool stories about uh, how ZFS got started and also explained... This, I, I wasn't going to share this, but since we have the video, it's in there. Uh, so, but I was going to keep it for the book. But if you've ever looked at any of the ZFS documentation and you saw that the default pool name is Tank in all the documentation, yeah, and everybody just thought it was, uh, you know, Tank just meant you know because it's like a storage pool, storage right? tank. tank. You put yeah, some, or, storage tank. Or, yeah, yeah, or or because you know ZFS is strong, like an armored tank, and you can't right. Uh, turns out no. They named uh, the various test machines and so on in their lab and the pools in their lab after characters from the Matrix. Oh, so there's actually Tank no. and Dozer, yes, and Zion and so on. And That's uh, it just happened to be the one that was used in the documentation happened to be Tank. That's amazing. So it could have just as easily been Dozer, <laughs> and then people maybe would have thought, "How did that know, come up, Alan? How did that come up?" Somebody asked. Yeah, so that was in the Q and A. Is that where yeah. that? Oh, oh no, I think it's in the. It was in the story. That's that is questions there too. That is that is great. That is mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. Uh, then they had a talk about declustered RAID, hmm. and the basic idea here was when a drive fails, rather than you know replacing that drive and uh, writing basically all the data back to that one drive. Uh, the problem there being that you're limited by the speed of that drive, right? If you have a 12-drive array and one drive dies and you replace it, you have 11 drives reading and one drive writing, and that one drive is not going to be able to write as fast as the other 11 drives can read. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with this declustered array, basically you would write some of the resilver data to the other existing good drives and get your pool back to a working state much quicker. But if you want the details, there's a whole half-hour video on it. Yeah. Uh, but it's really cool. Yeah, it is. Uh, then there was another uh, a student who worked at Delphix uh, as an intern gave a talk on his project Eager Zero. Uh, so this is for thin provision storage like AWS or uh, VMware. And basically, they've shown there that um, they allocate the space in the backing device as you use it, right? Kind of just like in a normal VM or in AWS, right? Uh, but that means that the first time you touch a block, it's going to take longer than normal to write to that block or read from it. Well, you wouldn't read from it because you've never written to it. But uh, you know, you can lose up to 50% of your IOPS because you have to wait for that sector to actually be allocated by the backing storage somewhere. Uh, and so that basically leaves you in two positions. Uh, or you have three options. You can just suck it up, and the first time you write to every sector, it'll take a lot longer than usual. You can make the uh, deployment of the machine take a lot longer by writing zeros to the whole hard drive before you start. Huh. Uh, but you know that could take hours and hours or longer. Uh, or you have this uh, eager zero option, which basically gets the machine up and running right away, but in the background at a low priority is writing out all the unused space with zeros. And then, um, you know, maybe during the beginning... Some places you go to write are not going to have been initialized yet, but uh, most of the time you're going to end up getting better speed, but it's not going to block the creation of your virtual machine for hours while you wait for right, it to happen. Right, right. 
Uh, plus, there's you know a minor enhancement to this. You could actually make ZFS preference to allocate space from the places that have already been zeroed to further reduce the the possibility of the slowness. So that was cool. Uh, and then we had lunch. Lunch was good. Oh, uh, <laughs> and there was ZFS cake. Uh, that was later. We'll get oh. to that. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Then George Wilson presented his work on a compressed ARC. So ARC is the adaptive replacement cache. This is the uh, the part of ZFS that makes it really, really fast mm. is using all of the RAM that you will give it uh, to cache the blocks that you're using most often, uh, most frequently or most recently. Um, and the blocks. Part of, yeah. So the blocks of yeah. files. Yeah, yeah. So that's if if you if you're only using part of a file, it'll only keep the part that you're yeah, using and exactly. not push other stuff. That's what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So the interesting thing is we've added compression to ZFS. Mm-hmm. Especially LZ4, which is really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you read a compressed, if you read a compressed block, we decompress it and then cache it. Okay. But that what if sense. we cache the compressed version? Since we can decompress the blocks at gigabytes per second with LZ4 because it's so fast, if we leave the block compressed in RAM, we could fit that much more stuff. In the arc, yeah, absolutely. Especially if it's like a database, which is the uh, what uh, Delphix does with ZFS, uh, where you're getting you know between two and five times compression. That would basically mean you now get between two and five times as much RAM. Almost. That's genius, and it's uh, kind of obvious too. Yeah. So with their test workload of a real customer's data, they were fitting 1.2 terabytes of blocks. In RAM and only using 470 gigabytes of the 768 gigabytes of RAM in the wow. machine. Wow, that's a huge because it was like a 2.7 to one. Very nice, ratio or very nice. Yeah, uh, and so then each time you read the block, it gets uh, decompressed and then sent. Although they actually keep a buffer of uncompressed versions of blocks, so if you're reading a block a whole bunch of times really quickly, it won't have to decompress it every time. Yeah, okay, so it's kind of smart. Yeah, and that buffer is tunable, but I think the default is like 100 megabytes. Uh, so they don't expect it to need to be very large because it's usually not CPU bottleneck, right? LZ4 is so fast. Uh, and so that one is something everybody's looking forward to yeah. because, uh, you know, that will let you get that much more out of ZFS with, yeah. that's with, one with of the those... existing amount of RAM you already have. Well, that's one of those features where it's like by using, I mean, I mean, just if you were, if this was a company and they were going to promote something by using your existing hardware and your existing setup, you're going to get X more It's yeah. without having to invest in any more hardware. That's a big deal. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, sadly, it won't help me very much because video doesn't compress. <laughs> yes. Or MP3s, right? Or, or right, yes. yeah. Or uh, probably uh, like most like RPM files, anything that's stored on Scale Engine. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing is that the compressed ZFS replication work actually depends on this compressed ARC work because it's oh sure going to the blocks go through the ARC. But anyway, that's cool. That makes sense. Uh, then uh, somebody gave a talk on discontiguous caching with ABD. Uh, this one was particularly targeted at Linux, but is actually being ported to Lumos as well. Um, Especially under Linux, because of the way the memory allocator works, and the, uh, they're currently using the slab allocator because they have to allocate like big 128Ks of memory at a time. Nice. And getting a, a contiguous amount of memory can be problematic, right? If you allocate and deallocate a lot, you end up with fragmentation. Uh-huh. And it turns out there's nowhere left in your RAM that actually has that many blocks in a row that are available. Uh, and so ABD uses like a scatter gather 
to basically make up a block by gathering a bunch of small pieces hmm. uh, and solving that problem. Yeah. So, so does BSD does BSD not suffer from this uh, memory? I think it, it already has something similar. Ah, something. yeah, because they've been yeah that makes it, it's been yeah. in production for a while. Yeah, well, uh, even Illumos has had this problem, and, and the big thing is that this is only going to get worse as we've upped the uh, the largest block size you can have moved from 128 to 1 megabyte and is on its way to 16 megabytes. Sure. Uh, and so obviously that means that uh, we have to uh, be able to allocate memory and probably don't want to rely on being able to do 16 megabyte contiguous <laughs> chunks at a time. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so that's interesting work there. Uh, then... Uh, Sasso, who's the guy that actually did the LZ4 implementation, gave three talks really, really quickly. <laughs> uh, the first one was about scaling deduplication. Uh, so the problem with deduplication on ZFS is, is once you start deduping data, even if you turn it off, the data has to, is still deduped, so you have to keep this table around that tells you where the blocks are. And if that table doesn't fit in your RAM, it gets really slow. Uh, and in particular, basically, it'll work okay until one day when it just doesn't. And then it'll oh, be so okay. slow and you can't fix it. No good. Uh, so he introduced the idea of a, a dedupe ceiling or a dedupe throttle. And basically, um, combined with other work that would basically, instead of keeping the DDT in RAM, you would be able to say, this SSD is dedicated to only holding the DDT, mm-hmm. the dedupe table. Uh, and then this work would basically uh, put a throttle or a ceiling in that would say, once that SSD is full, stop deduping and just write the stuff undeduped because until we can add another SSD or something to hold a bigger dedupe table. Uh-huh. Uh, because, you know, the other option is your system gets so slow it's unusable. <laughs> right? <laughs> not, not, not ideal. Yeah. Uh, now, to go with that, you then, uh, he also presented work on a persistent L2 arc. So L2 arc is basically... Uh, you know, the arc is what you can fit in RAM, but and then you have a level two, which is normally an SSD or an NVMe or like a, uh, a RAM card or something. And what those do is when data is, won't fit in the arc anymore, like when it's slightly when it's aged out of the arc, where we need to take, delete it out of the memory to fit something newer in. Instead, we're going to put it on this SSD, hmm. and that will give us that much more cache. That's still faster than going to the spinning hard drive. Yeah, of course. Uh, the problem with the L2 arc is that when you reboot, it starts empty every time. Uh, so he's presented work where basically uh, it keeps a record of what's in there, and when it boots up, you'll be able to just go through <laughs> yeah. and do that. So it's like a now, journal? Yeah, except he made it so that it doesn't block ZFS import. So the system will actually boot up and come up normally, and then in the background, start reloading all the stuff that's on the L2 arc and adding the references back to your RAM so that you can start using it. That way, it doesn't actually slow down booting up, especially if you have, you know, some people will have like four plus SSDs full of L2 arc, you know, right, right, terabytes right. of, yeah. of L2 arc. Uh, but that'll be really interesting work, especially, uh, you know, at first when I saw somebody uh, mirroring their L2 arc, I was like, why would you do that? If you stripe them, you get twice as much uh, cash this way. And, you know, if you lose one, it's only the cache. The original file is still over there. And they're like, well, turns out that our app needs an L2 arc. If, if basically, if we actually have to go to the hard drive, it's too slow. Uh, so if our 
one of our SSDs dies, we actually mirror them so that we can keep up the, the level of speed we need. And so I can see them also needing the L2 arc. Otherwise, if they reboot, they have to leave the machine you know, offline for a while to let it warm back up. Yeah, right. Uh, so that'll be really interesting. Although, because of the way it works, it probably won't help which, what uh, Chris Moore wanted it for, which was you know, kind of like a prefetch when booting to uh-huh. make your system boot faster. Yeah, of course. Because it's not going to... Uh, you definitely don't want it to not l- finish uh, importing ZFS until it's read through the whole L2 arc because mm-hmm. that would actually make booting take even longer. Mm-hmm. But because it's doing it in the background, you're probably not uh, going to have loaded much of the L2 arc into RAM uh, or yeah. back into usability before your system's finished booting anyway. That seems reasonable. But uh, it is interesting work. Uh, and then lastly, he presented on ZFS native trim. So... Uh, there's been trim support for ZFS built into FreeBSD for a while, but it's very specific to FreeBSD. And, you know, Illumos and, and Linux still need a solution for this. Mm. Uh, so he's building a better one, and uh, it is better, so FreeBSD will adopt it as well. So it's like a, so what is different? So is it is it not implemented at the file system layer right now? Right. In, in FreeBSD, uh, once a block is going to be freed, we just pass it down to our Geom storage layer that then will ah, trim it. Okay. Uh, and so... This one is a little smarter about it as well. It'll do bigger chunks at a time. And, uh, but in general, it implements the same strategy, which is when a block gets freed and we're done with it, it goes on a list. And then uh, only after something like 64 transaction groups do we actually send the trim command. In case we're, we reuse that block in the meantime and we didn't need to bother trimming it. Right, because if uh, trimming it is extra work for the SSD and it right. wears out the flash yeah. faster. True enough. So um, this allows you to basically only once you're sure that you're not going to need that block again for a while do you tell the SSD to trim it. Wow, that is nice. And it also has a throttle; it only trims so many blocks at a time, one in e- on, as each transaction group goes forward. So you don't uh, often, if you trim a whole lot of blocks at once with an SSD. The SSD will kind of go catatonic until it finishes the work. Yeah, it'll block other things from happening, and you really don't want that to happen, no. right? So you give it, you meter out the little the work over time, hmm. so that the SSD performs better. Hmm. And you can see he's got a timeline graph of how that works there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, then the next presentation was about sandboxing ZFS on Linux. Uh, so on Solaris or like Illumos, and on BSD, we have uh, zones and jails, and basically. Those are container frameworks, and we have a way to say, you know, take this data set and give it to root in this jail, and they can do whatever they want with it. Uh, and they kind of want something like that for Linux. Uh, and uh, so this is a talk explaining how uh, the work he's done so far to get it to work, uh, but also what the current uh, limitations and drawbacks are of the container frameworks on Linux. And, uh, uh, and in what, particular, are they? what are they? Um, they have no way. Uh, the code for ZFS on Linux just assumes that root means root and basically it doesn't have a way to limit what things root in the container can do versus what things root on the host can do mm. uh, like uh, uh, FreeBSD and, and Illumos have. Uh, and currently the way you actually um, sandbox the data set is by like echoing some stuff into like slash proc and so on instead of using the ZFS command line. So uh, in, in and other words- I, I guess the other big problem is that Unlike on Solaris and BSD, uh, when you create a container or a namespace, uh, yes, a namespace on Linux, it doesn't have its own unique identifier, 
right? Like on FreeBSD, you have a jail that has a, a name and a number. And I think Solaris zones are, are very similar. But on Linux, when you create this container, it's just like this process is in a container. It doesn't actually have an identifier where you could say, you know, give this right. ZFS data set each, to this container. Each process is yeah. done at the process, right? Each process has its own namespace, essentially. And, and, but you can have multiple processes in the same namespace, but the namespace itself doesn't actually have an ID. Have an ID. Yeah. And so how do you give uh, a ZFS data set to it? Seems like they just need to add an ID. Uh, it's a bit more complicated than that, but yes, there basically there are some missing pieces in Linux to be able to implement the same behavior. But there are people working on it. Uh, and then next, we had a presentation uh, from Intel actually about uh, metadata allocation classes. So this is extending that idea of putting the um, dedupe table from the uh, onto an SSD, yeah, uh, and taking it further and saying for each different type of allocation we could have classes with different dedicated vdevs so we say let's put all of this type of metadata on this ssd all of this type of metadata on that ssd hmm. all the ddupe on this and all oh, the slog on okay, this okay okay uh, and then if any of those get full just fall back to doing it the normal way uh but basically saying how about we put all the metadata for our files on an ssd but leave the actual data for the files on the spinning hard drives, hmm. right, and things yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, so that could be really cool, and it allows us to do things like uh, having the dedicated SSD for dedupe uh, and other interesting things like that. Well, and you can also say it looks like from this you could say you know this SSD is going to use a block size of this size, and we're going to have sizes of this size for this SSD, which is ah, well, that, no, it was more. So when you're writing to your physical disk, if you're using the what's going to be the, the largest block size on ZFS of 16 megabytes, you're going to be blocking down these big chunks of 16 megabytes on the disk. Yeah. But after you write that 16 megabytes, you have to write the metadata for it, right. which is 4 kilobytes. Right. Ah, ah. And if you leave a little 4 kilobyte there, then the next 16 megabyte chunk isn't lining up in a nice spot, is it? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And you end up, or you end up with them all like offset weird, and then you free that, and then you have this little 4K bit of fragment over here. Mm-hmm. And so by just allocating the metadata in a different place, whether it's maybe on the same drive but in a different offset or on an SSD, you deal with the fact that there's really a lot of different tuning that goes on between writing a giant 16 megabyte chunk and writing a single 4 kilobyte chunk. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if you have to do a lot of these 4K chunks, you're going to get better performance from SSD, whereas you know if you're writing big 16 megabyte chunks, you can get really good performance out of a spinning disk even. Uh, So that was interesting. Uh, And then... Just for, especially for people that are maybe a bit newer to ZFS, uh, he wrote ZTour, which is a, a Fuse implementation of ZFS, but, well, not of ZFS, of uh, ZDB, the debugging tool for ZFS. So basically, it creates this Fuse file system that lets you walk through the metadata of ZFS as if it was a set of directories. So, like, you see an object by its number, and you open it up, and then each of its subfields is another directory that contains all this information. Cool. You did a little video tour of it in the, in the video, but basically it allows you to see inside the ZFS metadata in a much more graphical way, hmm. uh, or even from the command line, even. Um, but in his example, he was using the uh, file browser and whatever operating system he was using, um, and kind of just see what is actually happening inside ZFS. Uh, and I thought that was really cool. 
So it's called Z Tour. So if you jump yeah. around, you'll probably find it in the. Yeah, you just basically had to take a tour of the metadata of a ZFS file <laughs> That's system. Cool. That is really cool. Yeah. Uh, and then there was a talk about write back caching and improving performance on ZFS, uh, which was really cool. And then they did a uh, story time and question and answer session with Matt and Jeff as part of the closing, which was, uh, you know, just asking them a bunch of questions about the, the invention of ZFS mm-hmm. and did they think it would be this popular and, you know, all that kind of That's cool. interesting stuff. About, you know, uh, one of the interesting that came out of that was a discussion of certain design decisions they made at the time. One of them that actually came up in the FreeBSD chat room this morning was that the minimum size of uh, a disk you can use in ZFS is 64 megabytes. Right? They did this because you can create uh, backing disks that are just a file on in like slash temp for testing, and that's really cool. But it turns out that meant they had to be very accurate with their accounting code for like where space was being used and so on. And they really wish they had just made it be like 10 gigabytes so they could have <laughs> been less uh, exact with the rounding code. Uh, because that's especially becoming an issue now that uh, you know they never envisioned people doing 16 megabyte blocks. Uh, <laughs> if your block size is 16 megabytes, your 64 megabyte uh, disk isn't going to last very long. No. Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of interesting things about that. That sounds like it was a good event, Alan. That was just the first day. <laughs> <laughs> what? Are yes. you kidding me? Nope. That How- was. They, How was the like, second day? Like I said, so, some of those presentations were only given 15 minutes to fit all this stuff in. Wow. So the second day, we did something completely different. We went to GitHub's office uh, in San Francisco uh, and sat in their like, lunchroom and had a hackathon. Uh, so basically, you got uh, to work with people you maybe just met or never only ever got to work with online or whatever, uh, but worked uh, with a bunch of people to do different um, projects. So uh, they had a bunch of different ideas for uh, everything from little things to big things that we want to change in ZFS. And it was write as much of a prototype as you can in one day and we'll all present our work at the end. And there's a link here to the video presentations of that. Uh, and then we voted and picked the, uh, the best projects and they won uh, prizes uh, donated by Nexenta. They were those uh, that soccer ball droid from the Star Wars movie. Oh, cool. Uh, I don't so know what part- its name is, but that's very cool. I forget its name, too. Yeah. I'm not a Star Wars person. Yeah, yeah, my. Uh, but I mean, uh, I like Star Wars. Don't get upset, everybody. Star Wars is great, and the new trailer is really cool. Star Wars is terrible. Star Trek forever. Wow. Um, anyway, so uh, lots of different projects, uh, including um, that metadata classes thing we talked about. Mm. Uh, the original presentation was just for doing it for metadata. Uh, but after seeing other presentations uh, that uh, were, you know, it turned out there were three different companies working on something similar to that. Uh, <laughs> he built a more generic one uh, that did like four different classes. Uh, and so he actually has a working demo of that that he showed us uh, in the presentation part. Uh, there was also work to do um, a new compression algorithm, uh, LZ4HC, which basically uh, takes longer to compress. But uh, so the decompression code is the same. So you get the same decompression speed, but you can spend more time while you're compressing and get uh, more uh, a smaller size out of it. So you know, while it took six seconds to compress this data with LZ4, uh, and you got like one, a 2.1x compression, uh, if you compress it with LZHC, it took 26 seconds, uh, but 
you got 2.7% or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, but when you decompress, you always get the same original speed. So That's you nice. can opt to say, That's very nice. you know, this is data I'm not going to be writing very often and it's very compressible. So or I really need the space or whatever and get higher compression, but still get the really high decompression speed you would get from uh, LZ4. And if I'm not mistaken, it also still has the early abort code so that if it turns out it doesn't compress very well, it will just not bother instead of spending all day oh. on it like GZIP would. Nice. <laughs> Smart. Good. As somebody who yeah. works with a lot of stuff that's already comes compressed. Or is uncompressible, then yes. yes. <laughs> that's very nice. Uh, and then I forget what one of the other winning ones was. You'd have to watch the video. Uh, and then I worked on a project during the hackathon. Uh, one of the original ones I was going to do was... Uh, json output from zfs hmm. but it turns out someone's already finished that oh good nice uh it's still being reviewed and needs some uh, a little bit more work but it is done so i didn't work on that uh, i worked on a new subcommand for zfs that will be i think it's going to end up be called uh, zfs abi uh or api and basically when you run it it outputs a list of the changes to the zfs command line interfaces uh so that uh for example, I have this script called ZXFer that does the uh, replication of data for Scale Engine, uh, and it's up on GitHub. And it uh, a problem I had when I was writing it was that some of my boxes were running FreeBSD 9.0, which has ZFS version 28, and some of them were running FreeBSD 9.1, which had ZFS version 28, but had a bunch of improvements to the command line interface that gave, made it better. For example... Uh, the no-op flight that would let you um, estimate how big uh, an incremental replication was going to be so you could draw a progress bar hmm. to tell how far, you know. So you could figure out ahead of time, this is going to be, uh, you know, five gigabytes of data. So that way, when you're doing the replication, you know, I've done four gigabytes. Do I have one gigabyte to go or a hundred? Mm-hmm. Right? Normally, you would just you'd be like waiting until it was done to find out how much, how big it was. Yeah. So this way you get a progress bar and a time estimate and all that. Uh, but because it didn't change anything about ZFS itself, it didn't bump the version number, right? And so there was no way to track that that existed. Oh. So it was very difficult to tell. And then now with you know the fact that you can use ZFS on so many different platforms now, right? It's like Solaris and Illumos and um, the derivatives of Illumos like SmartOS and OmniOS and so on. And then you have Linux, and especially with different versions being everywhere, um, you can't just necessarily look at the operating system version to tell you what's there, right? Because Illumos itself doesn't actually have like release numbers. And if I'm running FreeBSD current to get the new features, then how do I tell? Um, you know, FreeBSD 11 didn't have that feature, but now it does because mm-hmm. it's not actually released yet, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. So it it gets really complicated. Uh, so this will basically uh, give you something kind of like feature flags in ZFS, but for changes to the command line interface. Uh, so my script will be able to tell that, oh, this target machine supports being able to set more than one parameter at a time with ZFS set. And, you know, it's a lot faster if you do it that way. So when I'm copying the parameters for, or the properties of one data set to another, I can do one really long ZFS set command instead of 30 separate short ones. And it would be a lot faster. Hmm. But if that machine over there is an older version of FreeBSD that doesn't support that feature, then I can fall back to doing it the slow way. Hmm. So that's what I worked on. And, and uh, hopefully you, that will be upstreamed uh, 
What sure. is the what is the setup like? Do you bring your laptop in there and yeah, or, yeah, oh, that's cool. yeah. Uh, so GitHub just provided really fast Wi-Fi and its space, and then we brought our own uh, people and food. <laughs> uh, I guess GitHub provided power. Oh, that's nice too. Uh, but yeah, we just organized catering and and we just basically sat around at big tables on benches and did this. And uh, they had some nice spaces though. There was like uh, some those I don't know. These chairs look like the ones from the. Uh, Men in Black, the first one where you had to sit in the thing and write the exam. Yeah. And they were like an egg or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a bunch of interesting things like that. All right, Alan, all right. But now what about the cake? Oh, yes. Uh, at the, we had a dinner after the presentation day, after, on, at the end of Monday, and they had the cake because um, October 31st will be the 10th anniversary of the open sourcing of ZFS. Oh, it's a little celebration cake. Yes. Nice. Very nice. And this brings us to the moment where we get to talk about IX Systems, another favorite sponsor right here on the TechSnap program. Please. The sponsor that we were really excited to bring on. We were trying, like, you come to us. I think one of the few sponsors we invited mm-hmm. onto the show uh, because we were big fans of theirs. And we both had come to them and realized this is great. And I, I wonder if you, watched the, you could, if you watch the history of this show all the way back, you could probably see our sort of IX discovery path, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, at least externally. That's pretty interesting. IX Systems is a go-to solution if you want a great hardware solution for pretty much any job. They, I, I really recommend them over just about every other provider out there. I can't think of a scenario where I wouldn't recommend IX Systems. It really is a great hardware provider. They have an ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source you can download when you go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That's the landing page to let them know you heard about it here. Check out their whole site. Yes. Check out their blog, too, where they have a post about their Best in Biz Awards, which mm-hmm. uh, I think are, is kind of a nice sign well, for the company you're going to be buying. Something you're going to be buying is something pretty important from, you know, like your infrastructure. It's kind of yeah, nice. because it's not only do they have the right engineers so that when you have questions before you buy the server, you get those answered and you actually get the server that's going to solve the problem you're having, uh, but it also means that later on when you have a problem, they're going to be able to solve it. But they also have the partnerships with the hardware providers and the, you know, the disc controller manufacturer and the disc manufacturer to get you what you need and mm-hmm. have all the warranty support you need. And That's their secret weapon. It solves so many issues for me, and it's just I can go to sleep and not have to worry about it. Absolutely. Isn't that something right there? iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there, support the show, and learn more about iXSystems. Woo! Check them out. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Thanks, iXSystems, for sponsoring TechSnap all year long guys rock mm-hmm. all right alan so uh with our uh, look back at 2015 all done it's time for the tech snap roundup welcome to the tech snap roundup yeah that's what that crazy music means now the roundup are stories that we didn't talk about at the beginning of the show because we didn't talk about stories but we want to give you links to follow up on on your own after the show and some of these links came from that handy mr q5 sis and other sleuthing capabilities. And Alan, our first one is a project up on GitHub that claims to be a malicious traffic detection system. Uh, yes. And it looks kind of neat. It's called Maltrail. And it's uh, basically kind of combines a bunch of different blacklists and, and uh, other things like that together. So it can block you know, domain names, IP ranges, uh, URLs, known bad executables, hashes, all that kind of stuff. And it's MIT licensed, open source, so you can build it and use it and put it in a product, whatever you want to do. Seems pretty, pretty neat. interesting. Pretty neat. All right, the next one comes from Sentinel-1's blog, Breaking and Evading Linux with a New Novel Technique. Yeah, so this is uh, 
making malware that's harder to detect and can even break the disassemblers meant to detect it. Ooh. So they found that by uh, tweaking the ELF header, which is uh, the top of the executable that describes how the executable is, mm-hmm. and basically saying, oh, there are zero sections in this, uh, the disassembler can't even disassemble it to figure out what's going on. And uh, they found that it, you know, most of the security scanners and debuggers and so on can't figure out what to do with it. And doing this to your malware, so they took a piece of malware that they ran through virus total and every virus scanner detected it. They applied this technique to it and all of a sudden, 10 of the virus scanners couldn't detect it anymore. Uh-huh. Huh. There you so, go. Interesting research going on over there. I would say so. That is really interesting. Okay, so let's talk about Firestorm. A Firestorm vulnerability in firewalls lets attackers extract data from internal networks according to PC. Mm-hmm. I think it's PC or SE. So maybe. this is, uh, yeah, so this is uh, still a developing story. They don't have all the details yet because okay. they're waiting for the fix before they can disclose how it works. Uh, but in these new next generation firewalls, uh, the idea is that you can do this three-way handshake and uh, get into the network. And uh, turns out that you can cause it to allow connections that it shouldn't. Uh, but the only way to fix it is to disable this feature. Like oh, there's no way to yeah. fix the feature so that it'll work securely. <laughs> and the firewall manufacturers don't want to get rid of the feature because people like it. Uh, so it's it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I love the headline to this next story: Crypto Wall Four. The evolution continues. Yeah. So uh, you know, crypto and uh, ransomware has been a big thing this year, mm-hmm. uh, and is probably going to continue to be that. Yeah. And uh, you know, if there's money in it, people will keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, um, Cisco's Talos team has a big blog post here, kind of talking about the evolution and what new has changed between crypto locker it's a two huge blog or crypto post, actually. three yeah and they have lots of detail and uh it's a good read if you're interested in this happening uh and it just reminds me that i'm glad i have zfs snapshots to make sure that that is never going to catch me <laughs> this is a massive massive post like i'm not even i'm not yeah, even halfway there's I'm actually a second to... post on cisco's blog even though cisco owns the Talos thing there uh, Jeez Louise, this but yeah, is there's a lot there. You should definitely check it out if yeah. you're interested. Look at them go. All right, so now let's talk about McAfee. They're also trying to be impressive uh, <laughs> with their own problems. McAfee Enterprise Security Manager failed to manage their own security. Yeah, so it turns out if you just uh, use a certain username, then no password, you can just get in as administrator oh, and take over the whole thing. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, that's just, you know, sorry. Sorry about that. Our bad. McAfee's real, real, real sorry about that. They're going to have a fix out. No time. No time for that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's talk about this one. How to reverse unknown protocols using NetZob. Yeah. So there's basically a tutorial on using this application to kind of dissect protocols where you don't know what the protocol is. Right? So if you know what the protocol is, you have a protocol uh, yeah. analyzer like Wireshark, and it breaks out all the parts and lets you see the fields and know what's going on. But if you're dealing with some protocol in, say, malware or something that somebody just wrote and you have no idea what it is, this program can help you kind of work through it and try to figure out where the separators are and what the fields are and hmm. analyze it. Very nice. Really I never cool. really thought about that stage of it, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I could definitely see how they would need something you know, like especially, that. Especially, or if you just reverse engineering stuff, mm-hmm. you know, trying to do some of that to figure out how the PWM controller works on the Onion Omega. It's like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. All right. Like, so when I set it to this, it does that, and I set it to this, and it does that. Those don't, how does that work? 
I see how you roll, Alan. You're sneaking this one in right, right before the 2016 deadline. So you can say, I warned you in 2015, audience. I warned you. Don't be a victim to tax fraud in 16. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I don't know when tax returns open up in the U.S., but in Canada, you'll be able to submit within like the second or third week of uh, January. Mm-hmm. Start submitting your taxes, mm-hmm. even though the deadline in Canada isn't like a, a week. It's the end of April instead of like the second week or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if, if you're getting a refund, file sooner and get your money sooner, right? Um, People get refunds? But, that must be nice. I work for myself, so I don't get well, – in the U.S., I don't get – I don't want to go there. You're going to make too, me angry. I, have, I do don't, withholding so that I – Don't, I don't, no, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. It turns out Alan play, pays less taxes than I do, and that drives me crazy. just drives me crazy. Yeah. It's a anyway. spot. Um, so Krebs has all of his best tips on how to not be a victim of oh, tax refund fraud during 2016. And, uh, you know, hurry up and do this before somebody else does it for you. <laughs> Nothing like that as an incentive. All mm-hmm. right, fake Wi-Fi access points. What's this about, Alan? Yes, yeah, so this wifi? is a, a, a tutorial or walkthrough on doing uh, rogue Wi-Fi or doing like a rogue AP. So as you can see in the picture there, you know, there's coffee shop and coffee shop. Yeah. So you just set up an AP with a name that makes sense. Like if you, if there's a Starbucks and a coffee shop, maybe you just hit the coffee shop one and be like, oh, sure, it's got a stronger signal or whatever. And then you can do stuff. Or the evil twin AP where you do an AP that, you know, makes it look like it's part of the mesh network or whatever even though it's not, and then intercept all the traffic. So all the nefarious things you might want to do uh, over an article from rootshell.com. Very nice, rootshell.com, and we will have a link in the show notes because it's spelled kind of funky. Yep. It's spelled kind of funky. And that brings us to the end not only of this episode of TechSnap, but to the end of 2015. Mm-hmm. The next show, I'll have to make sure I remember, do I say 2016 in the intro? You'll have to tune in and find out to see if I screw it up or not. You figure it's going to have to happen at you least. probably have to tune in live to watch you screwed up. Yeah, because somebody's going to catch me, right? You will or the chat room. Yeah, you'd have to tune in live. So what you do is you go to jblive.tv Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom! jblive.tv is where you do that at. And we've got uh, a chat room embedded there, too, so you can engage with us live during the show. We have, like, you know, we take time during the segments and chat a bit. Uh, also, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get it converted to your local time zone. And we also want your emails, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and techsnap.reddit.com. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in all year long to the TechSnap program. We hope you enjoyed the look back. And don't forget... You can submit to the content and make 2016 even better in that subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. You can subscribe to the RSS feeds and get every next episode automatically when they come out. It's like magical ponies. Deliver them to your device. Why not check it out? Otherwise, those magical ponies are just sitting around and not getting used. Okay, everybody. Yeah, they thanks just so crap everywhere. Yeah, they make a big mess. Yeah. And also, I have to pay for them in Bitcoin. So don't make me waste Bitcoin because that's going up in value right now. And that just – don't get me started. Don't get me started. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week.